I just think he's full of SH1T at times. It's like, you know, quoting Kipling to players doesn't work with your Kipling. Probably Mr. Kipling would have been better. OTB AM, live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, it's bang on half past seven. You're very welcome along to OTBAM. It's Sharon Owen with you this Wednesday morning. It was a bit muggy when I was coming in. I got a bit wet on the bike this morning. It's one of those, one of those where we have these like weeks where it's like, is it summer, is it not? Slightly unpleasant. Very unpleasant. We managed to make it in in one piece. It's getting there. It feels, it's beginning to feel like summer. You, you were a bit um, betwixt and between. Cast near a clout till maybe out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing. Wow, you were just speaking my mind out loud. There you go. Um, yes, I was. Yeah, and then you got very self-conscious about it, so I decided I'd bring it up right at the top of the show. Yeah. Um, you are wearing a Rangers top this morning. I was not wearing a Rangers top. I was just wearing a blue Adidas top. Yeah, well, that was like Rangers when they were good, when they had the, the three stripes. I presume Chelsea had a similar thing. No, I don't know. I don't know. For whatever reason, I don't think Chelsea, made, they might have had an Umbro kit. And a Cardiff... Any, oh, but any, any the other famous white. teams that play with blue. Any other blue and white team. Well, they reached the they reached the Champions League semi-finals, quarter-finals, semi-finals against Marseille when they had Trevor Steven, that team. You don't remember any of this? No. Right. You're not going to show the, the world your no. your lovely Rangers top? I don't. It's not a Rangers top, it's just an Adidas Sippy. 731, if you want to get in touch this morning, we'd love to hear from you. Hashtag OTBAM. Owen's never speaking to me again. <laughs> OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish. How are you, Owen? I'm okay. I'm yeah, sorry. I'm okay. I apologise. No, it's, I, I forgive you. It's always like, forgive sorry. You. I always take things too far. You've took it way too far. I can't believe you called me uh, a Rangers fan. Disappointed after last week. In the football that Rangers lost because you're a Rangers fan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the There's a, a, a consensus. You very rarely get consensus in the columnists of a Wednesday morning, but mm. there seems to be a consensus that the GA has gone to hell in a handcart from both Dara O'Shea and Martin Brehney. Yes, this is something that probably has been spoken about quite a bit over the last little while. I think they dedicated some time to it on the Sunday game after the hurling on Sunday as well. This idea that... A bedtime on a Sunday night, so I missed No, it. I mean the, the daytime Sunday game. All right. Uh, sorry, that they were talking about, you know, the idea that it's split season. It's just a bad, bad idea. Teams going home, no championship hurling for Waterford, for example, for 11 months that, you know, their season is over and, and poor them and they've completely messed things up with pushing the championship forward. And that seems to be the prevailing theme in Martin Bretney's column this morning. He refers to the decision to go to split season as the GEA's Brexit. Brexit comes to mind. Unable to cope with the constant sniping of Tory Eurosceptics, David Cameron called a referendum thinking he'd win. He then ran an appalling campaign, lost the vote and created a mess which is still damaging Britain, Ireland and the rest of Europe. And all because he failed to deal with a much smaller problem at the start. The early start and conclusion to the championships is the GAA's Brexit. The consequences won't be good. (laughs) Possibly, I, I would like to see the consequences before we conclude that the consequences won't be good of Brexit. Yes, or, or see them. I, I think that's a fair point. Is that like maybe the club season uh, with a full year of coverage and everybody prepared for it will actually burst into life as this kind of Irish version of March Madness, except all over the country. I don't know. It's possible. We don't know. Uh, that that range of outcomes is still available to us. Everybody 
in the uh, media who is against the split season is essentially saying no one cares about the club game get over yourself yeah and like I think it's it's hard to make a case that the, the GA won't suffer in terms of its exposure for, for a couple of months but I actually think that this conversation misses the point spectacularly and it's not just that column this morning that Roche is talking about scheduling in, in the Irish Times this morning that's a, a little bit of a different angle I think but maybe that, that column in the Irish Independent and also on, on Sunday on television as well I think just misses the point entirely about what's going on with the Intercounty Championship at the moment especially when it comes to the football you have top class players sitting on their arse for weeks on end without playing meaningful matches throughout the months of April and throughout the month of, of May once again. That particularly goes for Kerry uh, when, when they're playing this weekend against Limerick. You know, that Roche is complaining about the scheduling of that match. That is not the biggest issue here. The biggest issue here is that there just aren't enough games in a decent time of year that these players are playing in. After the league, as I've said multiple times in the show, David Clifford, with the exception of playing Limerick and the exception of playing Cork, will have his feet up for 12 weeks. Like, how is this How is this actually a schedule being put in the wrong time of the year? The schedule itself is completely broken. And regardless of what time of the year it is, or regardless of how much time you give to the club player, it's just not being utilised in the right way. They're absolutely not squeezing enough out of this thing. And that, for me, is the big issue, fixing the, the structure that actually exists there, rather than the time of the year that it's being played in. Um, like, I mean, when you go up against sports this weekend, I accept that, you know, it's, it's tough for the GEA to compete against a Champions League final or uh, a Champions Cup final and they're really, really going to struggle for exposure in that. But that's just the way of life. I mean, making all your decisions based on who you're going up against in a weekend can't be the way forward for the GEA. You know, the, the boring old cliche that every manager will give you is we can only look after our own team, you know, we can only look after ourselves. The GEA need to look after themselves a little bit more and ensure that their own product is a little bit better because the reason they've been creamed football-wise over the last month is not because of the fact that they've given more time to the club season. It's because their own football season is crap. There was one game so far that, that really mattered in... Yeah, two, Con- I would in, say. In, the two Derry games. Well, I was going to say, it's been one game so far that really mattered in Connacht and a couple of matches okay, yeah. in Ulster. And that's it. All the rest yeah. of the football has been completely devoid of meaning. Yeah. like I mean, for Limerick, they're going to say, well, we're reaching a, a, a final. But like... You know, uh, it would be amazing if Limerick were able to actually come up a division this year and get promoted and into a, a like play loads of games in the Gaelic grounds and get get crowds there against opposition where they're not a hundred to one. The hundred, they're like I don't know whatever the odds are twenty to one they are, but they're hundred to one on is Kerry. So uh, if only they'd had a proposal that fixed it. So we're back I know, to but like we're on old territory again and again and again, and it's just it's just frustrating that you know the, the split season is seen as the reason why this championship is not going to be enjoyable. That's not the reason at all. I accept that it can be a reason. I, I totally buy that, you know, you, you may not be happy with the fact that there is a split season and that we won't have uh, GA later in the summer because you've got this nostalgic notion of, you know, weeks and weeks leading into an All-Ireland final. I get that, and I think there's, there's merit in that argument, but that is not the problem. Hurling is a little bit different, I accept, but at the same time, like I mean, the, the hurling structure seemed pretty spot on a couple of years ago is playing it later in the summer with better conditions going to make it a better product? Of course it is. But is it going to be this this, this all-changing thing that will improve your feeling of the championship? I'm, I'm not sure it is. And like, I think there's a bit of overrating what, I, well, what it, the, the trouble is feeling was. You're having a row about the wrong thing. I think so. Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. And uh, again, I think that the uh, hurling and football conversations are... There's nuance there that, that separates the two of them. 
but certainly when it comes to football and I, and I know that in fairness the main picture there is of a Dublin hurler and, and Martin Brenny's point will be about the hurling and I'm not even really having a go at him it's it's more the, the overall conversation around the split season is frustrating to me because it's being held up as a massive issue when there are much bigger problems um, Yeah I, would, I did often wonder like what the split season would look like if the club season came first and we all got to like identify the best club players who might then subsequently have an impact on the championship Yeah like I mean but th- that is Can we try that? That, that that's probably one of the solutions here that <laughs> what you essentially do is then start your league or the, the beginning of your intercounty championship in, in March and play it all the way through till September and then you just hand over all the crap months to the club player and that's that's one of the solutions whereas in this way at least you know uh, you're, you're sharing the summer I was thinking more like uh, club for the first five months of the year and then you get five months of uh, intercounty and then there's a month of uh, colleges and then there's a month off or yeah. there's a month off and there's a month of colleges. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, Moondust has been in touch to say nobody cares about football, hurling is king, move on. <laughs> there might be a reason for that, Moondust. There might be a reason that nobody cares about football. And are there no problems with the uh, with the hurling structures as as people are suggesting today? Of course, they, well, I think John Fogarty is actually saying in the Irish Examiner today that uh, Munster should be given four qualification spots from their provincial championship and Leinster should be reduced to two. In fairness, he's not wrong in terms of addressing the, the fact that there's been an imbalance in the, the powers that, that run hurling at the moment because they're all coming from Munster. Um, Munster and Kilkenny. I know, obviously, Wexford got to a semi-final in 2019, but... Uh, maybe if you're looking at their overall championship form, that might seem like an anomaly. Yeah, but that, how did Tipperary do this year in the championship? Rock bottom. And how did Walford do this year in the championship? Second from bottom. So we should reward the losers. Yeah. We should, like, grandfather them into the championship. But his point would be that they were playing stronger teams, they weren't playing Leach and Westmeath. Oh, pity major. Yeah. Like, I, I think that the Hurling Championship has time and again proven itself to be absolutely brilliant and it may not have had the final day drama of previous years but it will have that drama again probably next year or the year after I wouldn't be touching it just yet and I think it completely adds to the sense of jeopardy that two good teams are crashing out of Munster Poor Kerry in all this though it is a bit mad isn't it? It is I I think the GEA have to intervene uh, like I mean, the GA can change things pretty quickly if they wanted. No, not so no, they need to go to Congress. If they Everything want. needs to go to Congress. <laughs> so th- there's three, there's three options. Handy here. little, right. kick that one to Congress. Like, but well, sorry, there's four options. Give us time to buy the votes. Uh, option one is accept the unfairness of the competition, which is probably what's going to happen. Uh, option two is and do nothing. Sit in your hands. Yeah, exactly. Hope that, that it goes that, away. That's what's going to happen. Wait for the matches to supersede things. <laughs> Distract them. Look, a bird. That's <laughs> so. That's what's going to happen. That's a spoiler. Option option two is let Kerry come into Munster next year, six-team Munster Hurling Championship. Option three is let Kerry automatically progress into Leinster. And then option four is, what is option four again? I can't quite remember. But there, your hands there, again. There, there, is, there is another uh, opportunity was here there? for GEA to be fair, which right. I've totally forgotten. Um, is why, it, why can't they just go straight into... I don't, I don't know. Sorry, by the way, this is if Kerry win the Joe McDonough Cup, there's no guarantee that they beat Antrim. In fairness, Antrim not a hope. Antrim favourites. The Kerry would, have, would then lose three McDonough Cup finals in a row. But if they win the second-tier competition, they should be in the first-tier competition. It's be, pretty yeah. simple. <laughs> and there's, everybody got, else is, right? Everybody else is, because they're from Leinster. Antrim from Leinster. Get automatic <laughs> entry into Leinster. <laughs> it's completely messed up. Oh, Kerry should take them to court. 7.41 this morning, you're watching OTBAM. We're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish your day. We're going to get to Graham Hunter talking about the football. We'll bring up Lewis Suarez and the, the uh, transfer title title that perhaps suggests it's going to be Suarez and Coutinho again for uh, Stevie G. I don't know about that. We'll see. Uh, we'll 
we love to talk about Kylian Mbappe and we'll preview this small matter of the Champions League which might be the biggest game on, on Saturday but maybe Caldera versus Dublin is bigger we'll talk about uh, that with Anthony Moyles a little bit later on but at 7.42 we want to turn to something pretty horrific the Golden State Warriors coach Steve Kerr last night refused to talk about basketball before his team's playoff loss to the Dallas Mavericks on Tuesday night instead delivering a passionate speech condemning gun violence in the United States um. I'm not going to talk about basketball. Nothing's uh, happened with our team in the last six hours. We're going to start the same way tonight. Um, any basketball questions uh, don't matter. Um, since we left shoot-around, 14 children were killed 400 miles from here. And a, and a teacher. And in the last 10 days, we've had elderly black people killed in a supermarket in Buffalo, we've had Asian churchgoers killed in Southern California, and now we have children murdered at school. When are we going to do something? I'm tired. I'm, I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to, to the devastated families that are out there. I'm so tired of the... Excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm tired of the... Moments of silence. Enough. There's 50 senators right now who refuse to vote on H.R. 8, which is a background check rule that the House passed a couple of years ago. It's been sitting there for two years. And there's a reason they won't vote on it, to hold on to power. So I ask you, Mitch McConnell, I ask all of you senators who refuse to do anything about the violence and school shootings and supermarket shootings, I ask you, are you going to put your own desire for power ahead of the lives of our children and our elderly and our churchgoers? Because that's what it looks like. It's what we do every week. So I'm fed up. I've had enough. We're going to play the game tonight. But I want every person here, every person listening to this, to think about your own child or grandchild or mother or father or sister brother. How would you feel if this happened to you today? We can't get numb to this. We can't sit here and just read about it and go, well, let's have a moment of silence. Yeah, go Dubs, you know. Come on, Mavs, let's go. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go play a basketball game. And, the, and 50 senators in Washington are going to hold us hostage do you realize that 90% of Americans, regardless of political party, want background check, universal background check? 90% of us, we are being held hostage by 50 senators in Washington who refuse to even put it to a vote, despite what we, the American people, want. They won't vote on it because they want to hold on to their own power. It's pathetic. I've had enough. Steve Kerr there last night. You're a follower of Steve Kerr's career. Understand a little bit about his history and the man he is. Yeah, well, like I think it's I've never seen um, as extraordinary a piece of um, spoken word from from a coach, especially around game time, as Steve Kerr right there. Like anybody who would have like listened to his his podcast in the ringer around um, pandemic time would, would definitely know kind of how in tune he is with this. Anybody who half knows Steve Kerr would, would absolutely know that. Obviously, his own history um, is is probably scattered with things that inform his worldview, like his 
his father being uh, assassinated in Beirut probably has a significant part to play in that. And he's always been somebody who has spoken up when it matters the most. And it is just extremely jarring that in the state of Texas, they were playing a playoff game last night where this school shooting occurred as well yesterday. And Steve Kerr decided, you know what, now is not the time to talk about basketball. They did decide it was the time to play basketball. I mean, the NBA, of course, went on strike uh, around the summer of 2020 for a period of time as well. Jason Kidd said, who's in charge of the Dallas Mavericks, said that that, that was not something that they were going to do last night. But, um, yeah, I don't think I've I don't think I've seen anything like that in, in terms of, uh, as I say, coaches speaking out about social issues as Steve Kerr last night. America's in a lot of trouble, really. Mm. Where, like, if, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like it's um, really democratic as a country. It doesn't really feel like, it doesn't really feel like it's a country anymore. It feels like it's a series of broken statelets and uh, parts of it are really nice and then parts of it are absolutely horrible and the people who are in charge of the horrible parts seem to be taking over everything. Mm. Yeah, it, cer- it certainly seems that way. And I feel pretty bleak about his future. Yeah, like uh, the, what, what something like that can actually do in terms of changing anything, you're not quite sure because Steve Kerr has obviously been, um, he, he's kind of walked the walk in terms of trying to get a, a bill to Senate as well over the last couple of years, unsuccessfully so. And what what words can do rather than actions is remains to be seen. But like that clip alone, it's like 13 million views on, on, on Twitter as we wake up this morning. So that was around one o'clock Irish time last night before before the match. I uh, saw Golden State went on to lose. PFT tweeting, um, Steve Kerr for president and uh, you know literally more way more ridiculous things have happened there you go 10 years ago you would have been like oh that's a it's an interesting sentiment but now you're like well okay yeah maybe that might be something there that um, people can get behind 747 here if you want to get in touch we'd love to hear from you uh, 087 is the whatsapp number of course you can leave a comment on the youtube stream um, the hashtag on uh, twitter is otbam uh, let's turn to tennis. Colin Buig is with us. Colin, what's going on? Morning, lads. Hard to believe that the first round was still happening as late as last night in day three when Stefano Tsitsipas won in five sets. He lost the first two sets to Lorenzo Mazzetti of Italy. Spare thought for the poor 20-year-old. He was also two sets to love up against Novak Djokovic in last year's French Open in the last 16, winning the first two sets in two tie breaks before Djokovic annihilated him. And then Mazzetti retired in the fifth set for love down due to exhaustion. Well, he repeated the feat again this year. Two sets to love up against Tsitsipas, um, who is on the other side of the draw away from Novak Djokovic, Rafa Nadal and Carlos Alcaraz. He's odds on to get to the final again for the second year in a row. Didn't look good after two sets. Mazzetti totally outplayed him. But Tsitsipas prevailed and won in five. But probably the standout story from the men's side yesterday in another first round encounter was the seventh seed, Andrei Rublev, who of course won't be allowed to play Wimbledon, the Russian. He uh, lost his. Uh, he won in four sets against Kwon Sun Wu, but lost the first set in a tie break. And we'll just play the uh, video here without sound of his reaction there when he lost. For people who can't see, he's smashing a tennis ball against his own chair and just misses a court sweeper. Oh, did it knock the hat off the sweeper's head? Yeah, I, yeah, it seemed to knock them off the head. It didn't. It didn't contact the. Uh, the court sweeper, so it's on, and then he smashes uh, a drink there. It's on rebound, though. It's a ricochet. Yeah, it's a ricochet, yeah. So he smashes the ball against his own chair, Rublev, where he sits down Tennis brats games. are the worst. And it They're such self-involved dickheads. Uh, but, whoa. Come on, now. They are. Whoa. Whoa, come on. That should be your new kind of like tagline, tennis brat. Tennis brat. <laughs> Colin Buig, tennis brat. Um, yeah, I mean, look. Te- like, uh, well, everyone in every sport shows frustration 
you'll have footballers, GA players, rugby players show immense frustration. The problem with tennis is you have a weapon in your hand and you have a small ball and if you show frustration it's likely in an enclosed area that you might cause damage. But his frustration is no different to anybody else in any other walk of sport or life for that matter. Mm, But the problem is he has to, you have to withhold that aggression. And he said after the match, this is a quote for uh, Rublev when he eventually won first it. Afterwards he said, I lost my mind for a moment and of course I regret what I did. It's unacceptable the way I hit the ball. Uh, better if I just hit the racket on the seat because the ball can affect someone. This is unprofessional from my side and hopefully I will never do it again. But he moves on and of course people might be thinking who follow tennis or remember the big story from 2020 at the US Open where uh, Djokovic was disqualified for smashing a ball away behind him uh, after he lost a game. Had, he already, had, had Djokovic already had a warning or was that straight out of nothing? Had he not already, was he not already on a code violation that day? What, when he hit the ball person? Yeah. What he, yeah. He didn't hit her, but yeah, he went, well, he thought he hit her in the throat, yeah, so he was yeah. walking off and he, he wasn't looking, a no look, smashed back to the back of the court, hit her in the throat, actually. Oh, I feel so sorry and for And he was Djokovic. gone for, for Rublev. They're all out to get him. I'm guessing Rublev didn't get disqualified because he technically didn't um, aim the ball at anyone. It was an inanimate object and he didn't actually hit anyone. Now, if the ball would ricochet and actually hit the court sweeper, we could be a player down here from the tournament. He just got a code violation instead. So it's a fine line between in that instance, Djokovic of course, because the match is still on. Rublev's opponent would have won the game, right? Yeah, but yeah, and as as it exactly, and as it goes, is that he had literally just lost the first set. So it was his frustration at losing a close tiebreak. Uh, but he uh, he was allowed to play on and won the the following three sets. So Rublev is still in the competition, but that was the uh, the standout moment from yesterday. I saw um, on the like keep Twitter feed pictures of Joe Wilfred Sanga and his family mm. on the court. Lovely. It, he, he got beaten that was his last game ever last game ever he retired the uh, former Australian Open finalist reached the final in 2011 sorry 2008 where he lost to Djokovic that was Djokovic's first of 20 Grand Slams uh, he's a brilliant player very talented uh, he's like a real highlights player um, some phenomenal ground strokes over the years that was his best results really was the highest profile one for him was the final Australian Open 14 years ago so he's been hinting at retirement for a long time he has injuries he doesn't play every Grand Slam tournament but He's much loved. There was a tribute video played to him on court by the likes of Nadal, Federer, Andy Murray, Djokovic. And then afterwards, it was lovely. It was fellow French tennis players like Richard Gasquet and Gail Monfi came out to one by one to give him a hug and his former coaches. Lovely moments. But uh, yeah, sad to see him go because he's not that old either. Like, is he still in his 20s? No, he's in his early 30s. But nowadays, uh, players are playing for so much longer. Like, you have like the likes of John McEnroe and Tim Henneman were already discussing it the other day that early 30s at their time even at Henman's time which wasn't that long ago you're talking about 15 years ago was quite old but now you have Federer and Serena Williams playing literally in their 40s sporadically albeit but still playing and Djokovic and Nadal in their late 30s so a bit like uh, like any sport really diet's improving athleticism is on the up and players are playing for longer so for Sanga to go it's a bit sad Magic vitamin pills. All right, thanks for that, Colm. It's uh, 7.37.53 this morning. Here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock. Graham Hunter is imminent. Matt Williams at 10 past 8. Virtual Insanity with John Dogan at 8.35. Have You Seen at 8.50 with Joseph Conroy. Anthony Moe is going to join us in studio at 10 past 9 and we'll hear from Caitlin Thompson a little bit later on as well. If you want to get in touch, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Uh, Otherwise, uh, you can use the hashtag OTBAM. Now, 
Calling all cycling enthusiasts, Skoda are the official main partner of the Tour de France. And to celebrate on OTB Sports, we have a once-in-a-lifetime giveaway. As I've said this week, literally one of the greatest prizes that we've ever given away on the programme. It's a VIP trip to stage 13 of the Tour de France from the 14th to the 16th of July. So you arrive on Bastille Day. It includes flights and accommodation for one winner plus a partner. All you need to do for a chance to win is to be available to travel from the 14th to the 16th of July. And let us know who this is. Kenyan-born British cyclist, four-time Tour de France winner, was asked about his Saturday night takeaway. For me personally, that doesn't involve big bowls of pasta, but rather big bowls of rice. You're either a pasta rider or you're you're a rice rider. Each daily winner will win a €100 one-for-all voucher and a Skoda cycling jersey, and we'll go into the draw for the grand prize. Best of luck. Uh, Skoda drivers, for another chance to win, check out skodaservice.ie. Now to the Champions League final. Graham Hunter, good morning to you. How are you? That's grand, yeah. Uh, Real Madrid, right? The situation at Real Madrid is that they have had a really interesting season where the league has been a bit of a coronation. Some of those younger players have really started to mature. We've seen their older players wrestle their form back. And over the course of the year, we had expected big transfer news coming in. Something was going to happen somewhere along the way. Their dream was to unite the best young strikers in the world. And all of a sudden, when you're trying to dance with everybody, it's one of those situations where you end up dancing with nobody. What's going on? Yeah, okay. That's yeah. That's a real Jackson Pollock painting of the Mbappé. It's Mbappé you're referring to, right? Well, yeah, yeah. But they, they definitely they were they were in the Haaland stakes early in the race, and obviously uh, it, it didn't. Yeah, look, 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 look. We've been, we've been there before, where um, Real Madrid wanted Ronaldinho, but said to him, "We're not quite ready. Will you wait for a year at Paris Saint Germain?" And, and it failed. He was ready to go. He went. He nearly went to Manchester United. Peter Kenyon screwed that deal up. Bossa pinched him. Um, they transmitted when Minerala was still alive. They transmitted to him that they that they wanted to take Mbappe now on a free, and then Haaland the following season. That was rejected out of hand. They put all their eggs in one basket. A basket where you know, you, you given that Mbappe had. Um, Zidane and Cristiano Ronaldo as his, as his two principal heroes growing up. And he came to Valdebebas age 12 to train. And the the board of directors then, while Florentino Perez was on his sabbatical, when he, he gave up on his galactical project and, and felt he'd failed and went away for about just, a, just about two and a half years, um, Mbappe was there. He was training for them. The coaches said then, when you know, it's just about ten years ago. This is this is an exceptional youngster. We must sign him. Sixty mil was the, the price. They wouldn't fund that. They thought they were getting him. You know, a, a couple of terms ago by spending big money, he decided to stay. They thought they were getting him now in freedom of contract. If you were if you were offered a straight choice without the the, the benefit of hindsight now when it's all gone to, you know it's all gone to crap, you, you probably would put your your bet on Mbappe if you were Florentino Perez. You know he's enamoured with the club. You've had an agreement in principle with him with just about everything except for free, human free will thrashed out from about September October. If you want to argue the the, 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 the various merits of, 
Holland and Mbappe and say, well, you know, they really screwed up by not dumping Mbappe four or five months ago and just going for Holland and saying, splash, there's the buyout. You know, Erling, we think you're the best. Come to us. Never mind Manchester City. If, if that's what you're arguing now, then it's a it's a slightly egregious use of, of hindsight because Mbappe was the outstanding candidate. And far be it from me, in, in over the 20 years that you and I have been talking on your show, it's rare when I've been saying, yeah, Florentino Perez is right on the money. I've often expressed admiration for him. I've often expressed awe of his achievements and more often I've been critical of some of his stances, some of his behaviours. But when he and Javier Tebas say, hold on a second, the, you know, the, 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 the playing field is tipped exactly against us because we can't splash out hundreds of millions and we, we, we don't have the, the complete autonomy to do precisely what we want within the club and 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 to, to literally change financial history, then you know they are talking about a Paris Saint Germain who was able who were able to do the most extraordinary things, offer the most extraordinary amounts of money to Mbappe in order to persuade him. And I'm a little bit disappointed as somebody who works around La Liga and, and thrives on beautiful, intelligent, athletic, dangerous footballers coming to that country. I'm a little bit ticked off that he isn't going to be playing in Spain and devastating all Real Madrid's opponents. But it is it, it was an extraordinary tactic that the Paris Saint-Germain used in order to persuade him at the last minute after his mum's visit to Qatar and all the, the, the financial and political pressure that was put on the man. I, I wish Mbappé had decided differently. I don't think it's massively healthy for um, f- football outside Paris He's made this decision, but if you're saying, "Well, listen, Real Madrid really screwed up by not 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 pumping Mbappe a few months ago and going, let ah, let's cut our losses and go for Haaland," and for once, I'm not with you, Jerry. It's more, I suppose, that they've ended up not getting anything that they wanted, and that's very unusual. Like, uh, I don't really remember a time where. Uh, maybe that Ronaldinho example is is the most. Uh... Neymar is the other one, Jerry. Listen, I, you'll be able to say that that wasn't you know they weren't t- trying to kill two birds with one stone because Neymar was an individual project compared to what you're, the, the case you're making right now about them wanting both the players, not being able to afford it and, and saying to one of them, please wait for us. But Neymar, remember, was was again like Mbappe, was on a visit to the training ground. They thought they had him tied up with Santos financially. Um, Neymar's dad's involvement was assured. Wagner Ribeiro, the agent's involvement was sure. Santos were willing to sell. Sandro Rosé came to power, ex-Nike executive in Brazil, came to power uh, 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 cap now, and, and gazumped them, snuck in the back and, and lied about how much Barcelona had spent and goodness knows how much financial incentives were, were given to the, the parent, the, the kid and, and the agent. But in that instance, Roman had comprehensively lost what they wanted. And one of the things I'll argue, and, and I make no bones about repeating the fact that this is the, 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 the nitty-gritty of my ESPN column this, this week, the last time something like this happened, Real Madrid struck back. They they, they hired a guy called uh, Jose Luis Calafat de, de Souza, and his name is he goes by the name Juni Calafat. He, they they made him several months after Neymar joined Barcelona. They made him their Brazilian head of operations. He did so well, and they made him South American head of operations. Now he's really head of scouting and recruitment for Real Madrid. And, you know, the list of notches on the bedpost are, because he was told, get us the next Neymar, and the one after that, 
and, and and let's let's you know let's pump Barcelona in terms of scouting. Let, let's pay Neymar back. Let's do better than them. That's what Florentino Perez's Empire straight, Strikes Back instructions were then. And they signed Vinicius, and then they signed Rodrigo, and then they signed Valverde, and then they signed Camavinga. Now you just named a quartet there who've been absolutely fundamental in winning the title and taking them to Paris this Saturday. And okay, the Neymar incident took place in 2013, but but the backdraft of Florentino Perez striking back from that Neymar incident is still thoroughly being felt you know, eight years later. And the guys, the oldest of the guys I've mentioned there, I guess is, I mean, I, I'm not sure if Valverde's 23 yet, but you know they, they you know they range from. 21 to 23, uh, sorry, in Camavinga's case, they range from 19 to 22, 23. So in, in theory, they're going to be powering Real Madrid for a long time yet. The, the power of, of what you're talking about, the power of the sting of embarrassment, can, can, that vinegar can be very big sauce. One last thing about the Mbappe uh, situation. Uh, it, it has largely been painted as a financial thing. I do wonder if perhaps the opportunity to be the power in... Paris Saint-Germain is also something that is intoxifying for somebody who is as ambitious as Mbappe. Um, like, there was a slight blip in form and then the form returned to the levels. that. So it's clear that he is going to be able to deal with setbacks. You know, we've seen enough now in that short career, short but brilliant career, that he he's not going to be phased by the money. He's not going to be phased by any aspect of the celebrity or the responsibility that, like... You know, there's a possibility he's Michael Jordan-esque over the next couple of years and is the man who delivers yeah. and carries the team to Champions yeah. League glory. Uh, yeah, it's a good argument. It's a good, it's a, it's a, it's a, a buy-your argument. There There were any number of people about 13, 14 months ago who would brief you. It's It has gone to his head. He's changed it. <laughs> for, for my taste, all that was happening was a juvenile was becoming a man. And all of us, when we reach that age of majority and then begin to get self-determining powers and self-confidence can appear a little bit brash, a little bit more uh, wordy, a little bit more willing to impose our view. And I think, again, for my case, that was always happening when the doomsayers, about a year and a half ago, well, Mbappe's changed. Well, of course he is. He's, he's a multimillionaire. He's a world champion. And, he, and suddenly, he's instead of being 18, you know, he's 21 and a half, 22, currently 23. Your Jordan analogy, I like. Um, I, I understand that uh, you know you didn't take the financial aspect out of your argument, and, and that needs to be paramount. But selling in the dream of saying you'll be the power that takes this club, your club, if you want to, um, to its first ever Champions League victory, that is that is a pretty toxic brute to be selling to a guy. I, I accept. I think, and I wish he'd considered that League One is not a preparation for winning the Champions League and it's the odds are stacked against them. Now, if you're a competitor and, and you utterly believe in yourself and you utterly believe in people on the club and they say, well, we will actually buy and develop in order to change that and that we will be competitive, you can buy or not buy that argument. I think League One doesn't prepare teams to, to win the Champions League and I think that dream will probably become tarnished and I think my estimate is that Mbappe will leave Paris Saint-Germain vastly richer, will probably leave before the end of this renewed contract, in my opinion, and probably do so without having won the Champions League. If blowing Barcelona out of the water in terms of recruitment of young uh, Brazilian players 
was maybe Florentino Perez's version of revenge over Neymar. What will his revenge look like for this? No, I, I, I don't know if you want to put specifics on it. On, I, I wish I could reel off to you the list of. There's a guy called Endrick, a 15 year old Brazilian that is apparently the number one on the radar in terms of the equivalency you're talking about now for the Empire Strikes Back. Mbappe version compared to Neymar version. But the reason that Juni Califat is, and people like him, he's, he's not the, the only man in the world who successfully scouts young players, are, are so well paid, are so sought after, is that it, it, it doesn't take what I do, which is the great good fortune of travelling the continent to meet people and go to games or whatever. It takes an exhaustive sweeping of every um, network that you've got around the world. It takes a brilliant network to, to be established, just like Monchi has, for example, at Seville. And to, to be able to throw to you a clutch of exceptional 15, 16, 17-year-olds around the globe right now would be bluff on my part. And I'm not, you know, not going to do that. But where I believe you can expect an answer to a question is version two. They went through version one, whereby there were some failures. Again, I use the expression, nobody bats a thousand in the transfer market, particularly if you're buying exceptionally talented kids, because you can't do the same due diligence as you can on a 25 or 26-year-old and say, here's the character. We know the character. Because that character's going to change. You're going to, normally, you're going to transplant them from a different country and culture and, and potentially from a different continent at aged, you know, FIFA rules suggest it should be at age 18 in some cases. And then to say absolutely, we're, we're utterly clear on this person's um, ability to handle the pressure of working at the most political, most demanding club in the world, that's, that's not feasible. But in stage two, what they're much more um, aware of is, is how to prepare for bringing in a, a brilliant 18 or 19-year-old from another country, another language, another continent, for example, They're, because they've done so successfully. They, they've taken the careers of um, Vinicius and Rodrigo and Valverde, and currently Camavinga, who was slightly ahead on the scale because Ren had been playing him consistently for a couple of years in, in frontline first-team football in League One. And therefore, I, I think he was more accessible horseflesh. But I think stage two, when they bring these, and, and this is how they will react, because they believe that the nation state clubs, you know, to name just a few, Paris Saint-Germain, Chelsea have gone dropped off that list, but, but City and Newcastle will be in there. That, that their ability to, 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 to have endless funds probably means that Roma now need to not do what they used to do, which was buy a Galactico, the best player in the world at 25, 26, 27, 28. And they've actually done a vault fast on that. It's it's a really interesting change of policy because the whole Galactico idea was the, was the way in which Florentino Perez swept to power. It's the way in which he, he became the centre of attention between 2000 and, say, 2005, six. But now it's it's kids. You know, the kids are all right, to quote the who, as far as Florentino is concerned. And I think that Real Madrid are going to be better prepared to receive the kids that now flow in because they're... Listen, Chalmany from Monaco will be the first answer to your question. Mm. They will buy Chalmany as an organising midfielder. Suddenly, there'll be a player who can who can deputise for Casemiro and Madrid will be a hell of a lot stronger for that reason. But where they where they go in the 200 million that they've saved from a signing bonus to give to Mbappe immediately, that's more guessable than what will happen in the in the 
in the ripples in the in the pond from the Mbappe boulder thrown into the middle. And in uh, the year 2022, nothing bodes better for a Champions League final than one rival beating another to a signing. So the chow many thing bodes well for, for this Saturday evening and uh, pretty much well, weights it in Real Madrid's favour. Well, Salah's words too, yeah. We all have to thank Mo Salah for... You know, telling the truth when they won their semi-final and the next night's one wasn't sorted. I, I, you know, you, I, I haven't often done it, but I have done it in an interview. Who do you want in the draw? And players just, Alison, oh, it's all it's it's all difficult at this stage. And I love you all. And Mo went, nah, 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 nah. Give me Madrid. And then he, once the semi-finals were sorted out, he said it again. And I was at the AXA training ground recently interviewing Klopp, and he said, listen, the these motifs will come out, it'll be talked about, but you don't go into a game looking for revenge. And this 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 spills over a little bit into the Chalmany thing, I suppose. It, it does club to club, add a little bit of spice. But even though Ramos is absent, just the very fact that Mosala said what he said led to Fede Valverde the other day in a in a in a huge two page interview uh, with Mark, I think it was, going, yeah. Yeah, he, Salah's put us down with these remarks. And, and he's Uruguayan, so he means it. That's not, Jerry, you can grimace all you like, baby, but <laughs> Uruguayans are a different breed. When Fede Valverde bites back, he means it. I mean, it's if not, it's, it's me, elevating them, though. It's it's actually the opposite of putting them down. But I, I see if you're trying, if you're an elite athlete using any little bits of. Uh, you betcha, baby. Circle the wagons and they're all coming for us. They're all pointing at us. Let's get after them. What's going to happen? Look, um, I'll be sure by by um, Friday night, Saturday morning, because what tends to happen is you you, you listen to the words, you, you, you feel the vibes, you, you get the training ground reports. I, the first thing that will happen, I think, is that you could name 10 of the 11 Real Madrid players now. Alaba's going to be fit. As long as there are no training ground incidents between now and then, which, you know, happen, then you could name 10 of the 11. The, the, the last debate will be whether it's Valverde, Named as a, a third forward on the right, but oscillating very distinctly between that and midfield, or it's Rodrigo as an out and out striker on the on the right of the three that includes Vinicius on the left and Benzema in the middle. So Madrid's team is known, so Liverpool can plan for that. There'll be minor adjustments. Um, I, I I have to say that, that during the lead up, when I watched the way in which. There was a rope-a-dope trick played on sequentially Paris, then Chelsea, then City. My idea in sport is that rope-a-doping opponents means that eventually your legs go and you take one to the chin. And if Liverpool were able to play at utter full intensity at their absolute ferocious best, I'd have said that they entered Paris as as favourites because Real Madrid don't particularly like that. But watching Liverpool recently, with the possibility that Thiago is out injured with the gut blow that happened um, at the weekend. A magnificent show by Liverpool, just as it was by, by City, but it's a gut blow. I, I think it would be naive not to say that Madrid are, are, are prepared. They've, they, I don't think they'll have lost a competitive edge. I, I think that they'll have benefited a little bit from the rest. And from my opinion, Los Blancos, by about a millimetre, probably going to the game as favourites. Okay, right. That's interesting. And uh, hopefully we have an all-time classic. Sometimes these finals can disappoint, but I feel like this one, it's coming close enough to the rest of the season that it shouldn't. Yeah, Yeah. agreed. Uh, Last question for you. Luis Suarez, where does he play football next season? Man, 
I wish I was sure. Um, I, I think his desire to, 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 to be powerful for Uruguay in the World Cup, which remains, you know, there's been talk about his retirement there. And he, for my taste, he, he'll try to make a choice that, that leaves him absolute prime condition for a November, December World Cup. The obvious thing for him to do is because he has craved this for a while is to go and play for Phil Neville. I, you know, I've said that a little bit backhandedly. Um, to go and play and live in Miami and Phil Neville would be his coach. Um, look, it, it's feasible that he stays in Europe for a team that plays high up the pitch and presses and doesn't ask him to, to be doing multiple sprints and, and counter-attack football. He still has the, the physical ability and the finishing ability to, to look tremendous for a club that really dominates its rivals and plays high up the pitch. But if he can find that club, I hope that he stays in, in, in Europe. If not, it, it's it's long weeks. Inter Miami have been trying for him and Leo Messi for um, nearly four years now. So well, I suppose best bet Miami, my hope is not yet, Pistolero, not yet. All right. Graham, good stuff. Enjoy the game. Thanks a million. Lads, cheers for now. It's uh, Graham Hunter giving his thoughts there. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. It's 15 minutes past eight. Now, our first roadshow in three years is nearly here. The football pod have just added a male legend to the lineup for their show in Castlebar on the 2nd of June. Joining Paddy and James at the Royal Theatre is a man they had several battles with on the big days in Croke Park. It's Keith Higgins. Brilliant night of football chat. Plenty of focus on Mayo, obviously, in their game against Monaghan. It's the football pod with Paddy, James, Tommy and now Keith in Castlebar on Thursday, the 2nd of June. Tickets are €20 Euro plus booking fees. Go to otvsports.com forward slash events now for more. And they are nearly sold out, so you need to uh, get your tickets soon. Up next, Matt Williams previews the Champions Cup final. Back after this. OTB AM. Yeah, it's 8.17. Matt Williams, good morning to you. How are you? Good job. Going very well, mate. Yourself? Yeah, pretty excited about this game at the weekend. Um, excited slash a little bit nervous. Ron Nagara, of all of the people in the world, might be capable of pulling a rabbit from the hat. Well, it's a very good La Rochelle side. Um, they've, they've been in the final before. And uh, when your coach gets you to three finals in a row, uh, it's no accident. So they're a good side, a quality side, and they're capable of performing. And it's going to be difficult for Leinster. It's going to be 30. The forecast is 31 degrees in Marseille. At 6 o'clock, it's said to still be 29 degrees. Now, as an Australian, I played a lot of rugby in hot weather, and I can tell you that even for someone used to it, that's hard. That's going to be a real challenge for Leinster uh, to play in those conditions and to hold it for 80 minutes. So, yeah, it, there's, there's plenty to be nervous about, but there's plenty to be confident about as well, So, it, 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 which makes for a great game. Can you acclimatise in the week before the game, something like that, or do, do they just sit in the sauna all day and do a bit of training? Or <laughs> how do you work it? Good question. Uh, well, we used to go in the old days, a long time ago, we'd go to Africa for 10 days. Um, and we would quite often start our super rugby season when I was coaching the Waratahs with a game in South Africa in uh, late February, which is summer, and it would be 34, 35 degrees. So we would go there. But we were already used to it because we trained all over summer preparing. Our pre-seasons are in summer. I think it's very, very hard for a one-off game to prepare for that. Um, does it give does it give the French team a bit of an advantage given that they're used to oh, these conditions? 
Without doubt. Without doubt. Uh, especially in the last 20 minutes of the game. That's where your bench is going to be hugely important. But some players obviously have got to do 80 minutes. Um, La Rochelle. Now, they're not all the La Rochelle players played last week. They played Stade Francais in La Rochelle and they, they, they beat them with a very much a seconds team. But it was a very warm weekend last weekend as well. It was 27, 28 degrees. So the, the French, uh, end of the French season, they certainly have an advantage. And if it's going to be a, a very warm weekend uh, this weekend coming in Marseille, that is a big advantage to the French, yes. In terms of the, the Leinster game plan, it, it, like the, the high-octane style, the, the quick turnover at ruck time, is that something then that La Rochelle look at and say, if we can stay in touching distance with half an hour left in this game, we can absolutely start to turn to turn the screw? For sure. I mean, Ronan's going to be hanging his hat on a whole lot of small pegs and trying to keep his team believing they can stay with the Leinster side that's just wiped everyone all season. I mean, Leinster have been head and shoulders above all the competition all year. And for a coach, when you're coming up against that, that's quite a good uh, assignment. And that sounds a bit counterintuitive because you simply say to your players, you've got nothing to lose. Like, look how good these guys are. Let's just go at them. And here's the plan. And their plan, the La Rochelle plan, has always been uh, this season to target the breakdown. And they have been exceptionally good at it in the top 14 and in the Heineken Cup where they're just diving at the ball, being very brave and technically correct at the breakdown and disrupting teams' uh, attack. And you could see it in the semi-final against Racing 92 when Racing were just pounding the La Rochelle line, looking like they're going to score at any time. Then the La Rochelle... Uh, back row uh, of Ludenberg or Victor Vudo and Gregory Aldred and Bugatti the hooker would, would find a way to latch onto that ball and force a penalty or a turnover. And that's what they'll do to Leinster, as well as, as attack them at the scrum and the line-out. So they, and if, if La Rochelle have got any hope, that's what they've got to do because what Leinster do better than anyone in Europe is play very quick ball. They get... Um, their ruck ball going at such a pace, the defence can't adjust in time. And then you've got masters of decision-making uh, like Sexton getting getting the ball off Jamison Gibson Park so fast. Jamison Gibson Park gets the ball away so quickly and he doesn't get anywhere near the praise he deserves for getting that ball away. And it just creates this chaos in the defensive line. So for any hope, they've got to slow it down. But they do have a hope. Uh, I'd say Leinster are well and truly favourites and, and you know, should go on to win if form is anything. But we all know in a final uh, that anything is possible. So that's what Ronan would be be aiming at. But, it, look, that, don't let's not get too scared about this. This is a very tall order for La Rochelle. Leinster are very, very good and La Rochelle will have to do some extraordinary things to slow them down. Over the last three years in particular, Leinster have run aground against a massive pack which has always had one individual at the centre of it who seems to kind of become the focal point for the shorthand maybe for why Leinster failed and and that might be completely oversimplifying things but it certainly felt as if Leinster were coming up against a team that was too big or too strong for them and that was the bit that, that killed them at the end. It doesn't seem like that's even on the table anymore, for whatever reason. Is it because Leinster's style has evolved? Is it because 
they're playing a slightly different game and they're not getting sucked into those arm wrestles why are we suddenly not seeing so much concern for the repeat of the Saracens games and uh, what happened against La Rochelle last year June I think that narrative of Leinster being bullied by big guys it was a real oversimplification of the games against Saracens and La Rochelle last year And and when that goes out into the public, it gets a life of its own. And I've never subscribed to that. Now, last year, Leinster were without Sexton, Jamison Gibson Park and uh, Porter for the La Rochelle game. You don't win, (coughs) excuse me, you don't win Europe every year because it's hard. I mean, the team that's won it the most is to lose, they've won it five times. They've been going 25 years. Everything has to align for you in a year to win the Heineken Cup. You have to get a good draw. Your players have to be fit at the time of the big games. And on the biggest days of the year, you've got to play well. And that hasn't been the case for Leinster since 2018. Certain things have gone wrong. They didn't deal with um, Will Skelton well last year. But look at last week or, or two weeks ago against Leicester. There were some giant Leicester forwards on that field and Leicester just dealt with them. Because they're in form. There's a couple of aspects to that. One is Leinster, (coughs) excuse me, have played the same system as Ireland. That is, Ireland have played the same system as Leinster. So they haven't had to chop and change. Just going to have to grab a drink of water, mate. Yeah, no worries. No worries. (coughs) It's the heat of France. (coughs) Mate, I've got hay fever. (laughs) The, uh, The wind's blowing off the mountains here Everyone is absolutely shattered with allergies, so I'm, I'm struggling a bit today. But, um, look, Leinster have had to deal with uh, uh, all these slight problems. And you ha- it's, when I say slight problems, you have to be just at your best to win the Heineken Cup. If you're 5 10% off, you're not going to do it. And that's been the case with Leinster the last few years. This year, with, with Ireland playing the same system as Leinster... They haven't had to change. They've actually got better. They've all played together through all these big matches. They've grown in confidence. They've dealt with Antonio, the big tight head prop who's going to play for La Rochelle. They dealt with him against France. They've already got experience again. Porter knows what he's up against. The whole front row know what they're up against. It's not going to be a shock to hit Antonio because they've seen it against, against France. This is a really unique year for Leinster. The other part is you look at this Leinster side, and I'm touching wood here, they're going to come to the final with pretty much everyone on deck. It looks like the case. And everyone in good form, a lot of self-belief, a good rest two weeks in places, not like you've got the other the other year when they beat last year when they beat um, Exeter and Sandy Park away. They had to stay on the road because of uh, a COVID and go to La Rochelle, obviously away. So you're away from home for 10 days. And that has an effect on you. Mightn't be a huge effect on on well-worn professionals. But I can tell you from personal experience, it does have an effect. Now, Leicester didn't have to do that. So they've got a whole lot of pluses going for them this year that they haven't had in the past. And and I I just think they're playing such great rugby. And, you know, we're all talking about (coughs) Rana Nagala. And so we should run into a friend of mine. And I think he has done an absolutely sensational job and he deserves huge credit for everything he's done. But that shouldn't stop us from looking at Leo Cullen. 
and saying what a great job Leo's done in, in getting the staff together and the players together, having them all on deck. What a great path he has planned for this Leinster side to deliver them into the final in such great form and in such health. And then it's up to the players to do it. But we, we Leo dodges the media. He keeps very low key. Um, uh, you know, but, but, but what he's done is phenomenal. So, so I, and, and he's one of Leinster's own. We're, they're going to a final with 20 players born and bred in the province. Now, I, I heard you talking about the Champions League final uh, coming up on Saturday night. Uh, you imagine if Liverpool were going to that with 10 of the 11 coming out of, Liverpool, of the Liverpool Academy. Like, that would be just, everyone would be jumping up and down. That's what Leinster are doing. Like, we're not giving, in Ireland, and I, when I go back to Ireland, I find we do not give Leinster anywhere near the credit for what they, they have achieved and, are, and deserved because that is an extraordinary um, achievement. If I go to the, talk to the Waratahs or I talk to any other coaches around the world, one of the first things they always ask me is, tell me about Leinster Academy. Tell me about that. Like across the world, it's renowned for what it's doing, but we don't give it anywhere near the credit that it deserves, and we don't give Leo anywhere near the credit he deserves. And we, and we have to stop doing that because that's that's not just it's not just on on the Leinster team. And then when they lose a game like they've done in the last, they made the semis. We we say, oh no, you know, they couldn't they couldn't handle a big man. Uh, you know, I just think that's that's really disrespectful of the team. And I'll switch this another way. I reckon these Leinster players are really fed up with this talk. I reckon they're not saying much outside. But if Will Skelton plays, mate, they're going to be all over him like a bad suit. Like They're really filthy with what's been said about them and how they've been portrayed. And Leinster have a tradition of not saying anything to the media. They play a really straight bat. But within that group, there's a lot of anger and it doesn't get expressed publicly but they're going out to prove a point. So I, and, you know, a, a quiet man carrying a big stick <laughs> and very determined, they're, they're dangerous. I found that in life. That's, that's a team that uh, you're going to have to really be at the top of your game to be. Like, um, you've spoken there about um, the, the, the changes, I guess, that you can look at compared to the last couple of years and some of those disappointing results from Lencer's perspective. And I just wonder sometimes, I know he's got so much credit, but I wonder, do we often still downplay the importance of Jamison Gibson Park in this Lencer team? I guess you've been speaking about the Lencer Academy and I'm talking here about one of the players that that didn't come through the Lencer Academy, but he wasn't there last year. He wasn't there the year before. He wasn't there the year before in the games that they lost. I mean, in fairness, Luke McGrath did start the 2018 final that they won. Uh, Gibson Park didn't come on until around the hour mark in that game, I think. But I wonder even just him being an international player at this point, being an Ireland player since 2020, has that helped bring his level on to, to, to a different place over this season, kind of in a, at, at a belated point in his career. Yeah, without doubt. And I think it's a very good observation. He, he, the pace that he gets the ball away this season compared to past seasons, is, is, it's just not on the same page. He has improved out of sight. And it has been a massive, massive uh, aspect of Leinster's play that has created... Um, the pace of their game. So this, and like everything in rugby, it's 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 an it's like an ecosystem. It's an environment. So there's a couple of things happen. First of all, the forwards are hitting the ball at pace. They're using footwork, which means if and they can offload, which means the defence have questions. So if they're tackled, the Leinster forwards, like Ireland, 
tend to be tackled in an area that lets them place the ball quickly so that it's a fast ruck. Now, that's one aspect. The next next aspect is the scrum half has to get there and get it away. And Jamison Gibson Park is getting there at lightning speed and that ball has gone in incredible speed. The, the, the pace of the rucks and the exit of the ball from the rucks in the, I think it was the four rucks leading up to James Lowe's first try against Toulouse were under one and a half seconds. I mean, that's, there's about 15 movements that have to happen to get that ball away. In, in that period of time, which is really extraordinary, really extraordinary. And his and that then puts the ball into the junior's decision-making hands of Jonathan Sexton in rapid time that the defence just simply can't react to. They don't have time to react to it. And what happened in that try was the ball hit Sexton, the defender came at Sexton, he made the great decision, just pop it back on the inside. James Lowe and James Lowe scored the try. Now that's that's a very uh, that's a microcosm of what Manchester are doing all over the park. And Jamison Gibson Park, the accuracy of his pass, the length of his pass, and the speed of his pass from the second his fingers touch the ball to it hits the, first, the, the the intended receiver is absolutely brilliant. Some of the best I've ever seen. Two years ago, he wasn't doing that. He wasn't playing like that. Again, why? You've got to give Stewart and, and uh, uh, the, the Felipe Conopomi at, at, at Leinster huge credit for the improvement in the skills in those uh, all the players, but especially our backline players. And Andy Farrell for picking him when he wasn't first choice at Leinster? Like he was like, yes. no, you're, you're straight in here. You're in my 22, 23 guaranteed. And then actually you're straight in the team as well. Yeah, without doubt. Andy Farrell's uh, contribution to how Leinster are playing and a national philosophy that extends from schoolboy through academy through a province into national team and is delivering success. He deserves massive credit because that's what a national coach's role is. And then selecting the players where he sees and giving them opportunity. And James Lowe, we've got to put that in there. James Lowe was caught two years ago. And look at James Lowe now. He reinstated James Lowe. He said to him, James, you go away and work at these aspects you're playing. If you do it, we'll give you another chance. And he did. He was as good as his word. And look how James Lowe was playing. So Andy Farrell and his coaches, for the change they've implemented in the national team and what they've done, deserve huge credit. And they are doing a great job. We've got our test matches coming up against New Zealand. And look, that first test match against New Zealand, Ireland are in it with a red-hot show away from home. It's, it's, it, and that's, again, your, your environment, your ecosystem. That, that is a national philosophy. Leinster and the national team are enhanced by, ha- by following the same philosophy. Just as we look at New Zealand, Auckland or the Crusaders are enhanced by having the same philosophy as the national team of New Zealand. It's, it, it's, it's a system that has proven to work across the globe. Amazingly, very few countries do it. Uh, three quick comments for you, right? Uh, Dave Cos on YouTube says Rods is going to get the job done the Leinster scrum goes backwards Leinster hubris will lead to their downfall I'm like what, what Leinster hubris and then I'm reading the other clips the other comments uh, the La Rochelle halfback pairing is very weak for the final it's going to be a blowout says Flying Hellfish 99 and then Brian Murray says ah the team Leinster put out last weekend against Munster would beat La Rochelle so you know there's a bit of hubris there but uh, opinions are like backsides mate everyone's got one it's only going to matter what happens you know, at court to five island time, court to six France time at the Stade Villadrome. There is one big thing, which which is quite ironic for Ron Nagara. 
uh, in the Conakin Cup, West, their kicker, is averaging 78%. They're not going to win the final on 78%. They're going to rely on turnovers, kicking to the corner, mauling and penalty goals. They'll score some tries. The question is, Leinster have averaged so many tries. Can their defence hold them out? Kurt Barlow, high doubt, highly doubtful to play. He's got two broken bones in his hand, Ronan suggesting he's going to play with a with a uh, hurling glove. I, I really doubt that he'll be able to pass with two broken bones in his hand. Uh, Victor Vito has a very bad ankle. And uh, Will Skelton has only played a few minutes of rugby in a month. He's a giant human being. Look, it's stacked against La Rochelle. There's no two ways about that. It's stacked against. It's not impossible. But Leinster have got the bit between their teeth. They've got the form on the board. They've got a fire in the belly. And they are out to prove something. And they also know the stars have a line. This is an opportunity for them. They're going to be very, very hard to beat. Lara Shaw will have to play better than they have played all season to get a win. Matt, enjoy the game. Great to have you with us. Thanks a million. Thanks, guys. Great to talk to you. Hope the allergies uh, aren't too bad. Uh, calling all cycling enthusiasts Skoda are the official main partner of the Tour de France and to celebrate on OTB Sports we have a once in a lifetime giveaway this prize is a VIP trip to stage 13 of the Tour de France from the 14th to the 16th of July flights and accommodation for a winner plus your partner or a mate uh, all you need to do for a chance to win is to be available to travel on the 14th to the 16th of July and to let us know who is this for me personally, that doesn't involve big bowls of pasta, but rather big bowls of rice. You're either a pasta rider or you're a rice rider. Kenyan-born marginal gains in British cyclist, four-time Tour de France winner, was asked about his Saturday night takeaway. Each daily winner will uh, win a hundred euro one-for-all voucher and a Skoda cycling jersey and will be in the draw for the grand prize. Best of luck, Skoda drivers, for another chance to win. Check out skodaservice.ie. Time for Virtual Insanity. You have entered Power Drive. Oh, wow! John Duggan, welcome back to the studio. How are you keeping? Good, on yourself? Very well. How did we get on last week at the PGA Championship? Uh, only one place, which is Rory, who was eighth. And as I said to you on the Friday morning, I thought he would do it, Owen. But like you have a double and a triple bogey on the Saturday. And uh, well, as we've always said, the fr- when he's playing free, he is like unlike any other golfer in the world. He's unstoppable. And then when... The doubts start creeping in. The game becomes somebody else's game. He becomes another person. And he didn't do any interviews after his final round. I think that just shows how frustrated he was. Once again, four early birdies and then nothing else. And it is just frustrating for him. I just think he's beaten up, I think, by himself at the moment. And if he could kind of get out of his own way, then he might be back in the major circle. Did you think it was rinse and repeat with regards to the Masters week? Or did he see differences? Well, the Masters week was great. Actually, I really felt that was a breakthrough for him, that 64 on the final day. But he did it on the last day of the Masters, and he did it on the first day of the PGA. But it's one round isn't enough. It has to be two and a half, three rounds. Like, Justin Thomas had a bad round on Saturday. But he came, like, he, he his first two rounds were brilliant because he had the worst of the draw. He was by far the best player from the other side of the draw. Was six under par halfway. He had a bad round Saturday, but then battled back to get into the playoff. Helped, obviously, by Mito Pereira who was a 239 to one shot in the exchanges. And he could have been backed, Mito. Mito could have been backed. He was playing well. Uh, but on the, on the 72nd hole of a major championship, he just got to 
play for percentages. And when you've got a creek down the right-hand side, as Peter Laurie was saying on Golf Weekly, you just got to dial out left or you got to hit a three-wood. And people might go, well, you have to go for it. It's his natural shot. But you just got to take a risk out of the equation. And you you got to feel sorry for Mito. Never won on the tour, only in the second major uh, as, a, as a player. And uh, you've got a one-shot lead going down the final hole, and, and then you don't even get into the playoff. It was almost like Van der Velde. And then you have Justin Thomas and Will Zalatoris. Will Zalatoris, really um, enjoyable golfer to watch uh, 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 until he gets to the putting green. Um, but I, I like his attitude, I like his swagger. Uh, once again, he hasn't won a tournament on the PGA Tour, but the way he's even talking, he doesn't have any, seem to have any fear, and he goes, you know, I'm going to get a major soon. So his ball striking, if he, if he could put, he'd win 20 majors. You mentioned Van de Velde there. Where does the Mito Pereira 18th hole rank in terms of major golf's greatest collapses? Uh, it doesn't rank at the top. Like, Van de Velde will always be the number one. Um, Still he, made a playoff, though. You no, know, but it was gone. It was gone by that stage. Mm. It was a triple bogey on the 18th at uh, Carnoustie. For me, Pereira, going from winning the tournament to not even being in the playoff, just adds to how extraordinary the whole thing was. Well, it's a very hard hole. It's by far one of the hardest holes in major golf is that 18th at Southern Hills. So it's it's hard to make par there. So a double bogey is is, is possible there. Uh, but it, it's more possible when you're hitting it off to the right. Mm. Um, you talk about collapses, Phil Mickelson's collapse in the 2006 US Open at winged foot when he made double bogey in the last was, was significant uh, given the talent that he had in his body. I can't wait, wait to read that book. Um, Doug Sanders in 1970 at the St Andrews missed it like a, a tiddler a couple of feet to win the Open and lost in the playoff the following day to, to Jack Nicholas. so there'd be another ones there'd be another um, meltdowns Kenny Perry I remember the Masters I think bogey the last three holes ended up losing in the playoff so Sp- speed obviously but speed. Not, not in the 18th hole yeah, yeah and, and to be honest like sometimes the implosions can be bigger earlier in the like yeah. speed button in the drink even Cam Smith at the Masters this year yeah putting in the drink on 12 so it doesn't have to be on the 18th where it happened sure. everybody just thinks oh because you've got that far Monty in 2006 the same tournament as Mickelson Monty hits it down the fairway winged foot on 18 never won a major and then messes up his second shot and makes double and ends up out of the playoff bit like Mito Pereira on, on Sunday night and Justin Thomas it was almost like a classic major uh, Owen in that you know, you have all the pressure on the guys who've never won and then the experienced hand, Justin Thomas wins a second major in his 15th tour title. And I think that's why Woods likes him and their mates. Because I think Woods uh, sees the bit of the fight in Justin Thomas, the bit of the grit and the bit, of, the bit of the winner in him. For sure. So, virtual insanity this week, where are we venturing to? Well, we still got house money, Owen. Just, okay. We still have house money. We're, the house money's dwindling, but we still have it. We're still ahead, uh, just about uh, on the year. So, it, this is the Charles Schwab Challenge um, it's the Colonial Country Club in Fort Worth, just outside Dallas. 1946 was the first time they had this tournament. It starts tomorrow at lunchtime. And with the house money, this is all on otbsports.com and on the OTB app. I've gone for seven golfers. The main one is Sung Jae Im, who's 33-1 to 1 for four each way. Now, Sung Jae Im is one of the best players in the world. Unfortunate to miss the PGA Championship because he had COVID and he had to stay in Korea. But he's actually now fresh. I'm looking at a guy who's an excellent iron player. Uh, played really well at the Masters we might remember the final day um, he won on tour back in October uh, he had four rounds in the 60s in this tournament back in 2020 and I think like he's one of the best players five top 10s and 16 starts this season Sung Jae Im is the headline tip this week um, a great ball striker four each way 33 to 1 the next one is Abraham Anser for three each way at uh, 35 to 1 
to get in the first eight places. Like he was one of the top performers last week at the PGA. Found his game again. Hits it very straight off the tee. Third on the tour off the tee in terms of driving accuracy, which is what you need at the Colonial Country Club. Uh, so I think he could pr- be propelled to a second win on tour this Sunday. Abraham Answer, 35 to 1. Patrick Rogers is 150 to 1 for three each way. Once again, he's fresh, didn't play the PGA, was 10th in Mexico on his penultimate start, then played well at the Byron Nelson four rounds in the 60s. His form has come around again, was one of the best amateurs in the world, was the best amateur in the world. Hasn't parlayed that into a PGA Tour win of yet, but Patrick Rogers, I think, will win on tour at 150 to 1 for three each way. I think he's overpriced, and he played well in Colonial, 14th in the tournament two years ago. And I went for four players for two each way. I'll just give one line on each of them. Doug Lim is 100 to 1 for two each way. Great ball striker, 14th in this last year. JT Poston has had two top 10s in his last three starts. Great putter, second on the stats in putting last year. JT Poston is 125 to 1, and he's got a good record of the course. Austin Smotherman is one of these guys. <laughs> what, a, what? what a golfer name. You, you tipped him in Barbados earlier in the year. See, Owen, you're, you're taking note. I've put, I've put money on Austin Smotherman. Why wouldn't you bet on Austin Smotherman? I mean, that's I would die for Austin Smotherman. <laughs> After Ryan Brown. Uh, and Don Joken. Uh, Austin Smotherman uh, won on the Corn Ferry Tour last year. This is where Mito Pereira earned his corn, uh, if you can see hey. the pun. Uh, he had three wins, Mito, last year. Austin Smotherman is one of the best ball strikers on the PGA Tour. He just needs the putts to drop. But he, like, he lives in Dallas. I've done all my research here. Lives close to the course. He's a 200 to 1 shot for two each way. And the final one is Vince Whaley for 300 to 1 for two each way. A, a childhood friend of Scotty Scheffler's who came here last year and was 20th. So Vince Whaley, Austin Smotherman, JT Poston, Doug Gim, and then the three top ones Patrick Rogers, Abraham Answer, and the headline tip, Sung Jai Im, for this week's virtual insanity. It all sounds very, very complicated. Um, these are Euro, two Euro each way bets. You can get them all on the OTB Sports app on otbsports.com. All right, that is this week's virtual insanity. You have entered Power Drive. Oh, wow! Line. There is uh, an update on the Chelsea takeover, John. Yeah, did you see, by the way, John Daly playing uh, mm. um, as a casino with the bag beside him? Yes, after day one, wasn't it? After day one, using the Hooters. Kind of, you know, it, was, it, was, it was brilliant. Like The, the Diet Coke, the fags, and he's playing um, slots. What a legend. Actually playing a, a slot. Yeah, yeah. He has his own kind of travel around slot thing. No, no he was in a, in a casino. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Chelsea's been taken over. Um the UK government has issued the license allowing Todd Bailey to, to take over the club with this consortium. Um, the spokesperson says they're now satisfied the sale uh, will not benefit Roman Abramovich. So £200 million is what Thomas Tuchel is going to get, if you believe all the papers, uh, to spend. Uh, Jules Koundé, one of the transfer targets. I read that Raheem Sterling is a target, which, oh, yeah, which, which seemed to make sense, because I don't know if Raheem Sterling is happy at Manchester City. Um, a lot of players are going to leave the club. Rudiger's going to leave. Christensen's going to leave. I would say some of the front players might leave. Um, will Lukaku be there for much longer? Uh, so I think there'll be a lot of surgery at Chelsea in the summer. Uh, Spurs have, um, amazingly, and I, I actually fainted yesterday when I heard the news, uh, got £150 million, um How do we know this, John? Uh, what do you mean? How do we know the £150 million figure? Uh, was it, well, it was reported yesterday. Well, they, they told everybody. Yeah, yeah. They Bizarrely, did. they actually yeah, issued a yeah. statement saying... We are injecting capital into the club because, well, the ground is finally starting to pay a bit of cash for us and we have a manager we like and we have a manager we want to keep. They've made it public. Yeah, which is interesting because you'd think that would just inflate transfer fees. I was like, I mean, you're good at this, but not that good. Yeah. You think you're all 
Billy Big Bollocks and it turns out like oh we've got all the money in the world come and sell us whatever you got hucksters that, that also says they're terrified that Antonio Conte is going to leave so I did wonder if it was like they know he's staying if that if that is finished or is Kylian Mbappe on the phone to Conte going now look I know you kind of like to think you're the boss but I'm really the boss but yeah. you'd be the boss of me for like 90 minutes a week how does that sound hmm. Would it not be just so boring that we manage in PSG every single week in league on? I mean, boring as you count your money like Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> yeah. It's like that guy in a, was it Breaking Bad? When they lie in the bed of money, the two lads. That was just one of the best scenes ever. Um, I always wanted to do that. Um, Virtual insanity is your chance. Yeah, well, I have to do a bit better than last week. Um, yeah, but it, it spurs, uh, spurs with money um, to spend on players. I don't know. I don't, like it's, it's, this is a new world we live in. Uh, this is a new world, and it'll be interesting to see who they they're targeting. Um, so look, Conte's Conte's great at the brinkmanship, and to be fair, like he, he he's able to um, he walks the walk. Got them into the Champions League, and if you're Arsenal, you're looking at Chelsea and Spurs this morning and go, mm, "This is not not great for us." I mean, Conte could be the the club of Spurs. Like well, Spurs could like something in my head. I remember Jose Mourinho arrived at Spurs and says, well, "We're going to win the title. We can win the title." But Spurs actually could win the title under Conte. Um, it, 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 or they go get close. Um, you take that. You would definitely take it. Like I, a, I think you probably got to tip him to finish third next season. Yeah. But although Tuchel, you were saying earlier, isn't taking any holidays this summer. Tuchel is uh, at work, hard at work next year. We could see uh, that Chelsea. Eric Ten Hag is doing twenty four seven. He can. Sorry, he can he'll take there. your. He'll take your no holidays. And, and then Kalarteta is younger than all of them, so he can work extra hard. He can depressing. work twenty six hours a day. Yeah, he can. That is depressing. Um. Stephen Kenny will name a squad later for the Nations League matches. We play Armenia Saturday week away from home, then Ukraine twice, one of those games in Poland, and we have Scotland here on June the 11th. Will Michael Obafemi be in the squad? Uh, Roma and Feyenoord in the Europa Conference League. This is almost like the Worthington Cup of uh, Europe, isn't it? Uh, kickoff in Tirana at eight. Um, Novak Djokovic taking on Alex Malchan in the French Open today. Uh, four Irish boxers in the ring of the Men's European Championships in Armenia. So. Oh, that's the Conference League final. I was like, is next season's Conference League already started? What? Sorry, it's the final. <laughs> yeah. okay. okay, I get it now. J- Jose's chance to complete the hall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, Stephanie Meadow in the field for the LPGA match play. I did Jose Mourinho's story, but I can't say it. I can't tell it. I realise it. Oh, you can. I can't. Oh, you definitely I, can. I'll, I'll think about it and I'll tell the next time. Uh, there's also a race meeting over Jumso Wexford this evening first off at 5.15 I don't know if you guys or any of you guys are on that 300 to 1 shot that won yesterday no uh, at, at Punches 10 um, I'd say nobody was on it were they not even like the not, not even not even like Conor Dwyer Conor Dwyer the uh, trainer was in Spain I'm just trying to get the, the name of the buddy thing up here from yesterday I think it was Sawbeak or Sawbreak or something like that um, just just bear with me it was Sawbook 300 to 1 Charlie O'Dwyer riding for his dad Connor Connor is in Spain didn't have a cent on horses 999 to 1 on the Betfair exchange wins a maiden a punch 10 300 to 1 the joint longest price winner in the history of horse racing at an Irish track yesterday there you go John good stuff right, thanks very much for that uh, more from John on Saturday afternoon on Off the Ball on Newstalk and of course you can get your daily breakfast briefing if you subscribe to the OTB highlight feed it is 8.50 this morning OTB AM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day uh, Dave Coss says can we do a whip around for poor Madrid Moondust again says hurling is one of the most skillful games ever played football however defend your sport there on. I heard hurling is the fastest game on land. Fastest ball game on land. Field did, did, sport. Did you, know that, did you know that fact? Do you think um, 
ice hockey because it's on ice isn't on land, even though the ice is on the land. Is that the? Is that what you're telling me? Hurling is faster than ice hockey. Is it? Well, you can pick the ball slash puck up and puck it. You can't do that. Nice. You could pick up the puck and launch it down the other end of the. Or maybe the ice, maybe the lubrication of the ice just makes it travel faster than an actual air. Yeah. Uh, it is. Uh, <laughs> I'm not laughing at that. Time for episode five of Have You Seen Joseph Conroy's with us. Joseph, good morning. <laughs> morning, guys. Hey, getting on? Very good, very good. What have you got for us this week? Uh, this week we have Where Dreams Go to Die, Guy Robbins and the Barkley Marathons. Uh, in the grand tradition of the Have You Seen slot, the first thing I asked you guys earlier in this week was, have you seen this? I know neither of you have. Then the follow-up question was, have you heard of the Barkley Marathons? And neither of you were, had come across it before. So I might just run you through the setup of the race before we get into the details of this documentary. Um it's a kind of, this is sort of on the theme. I saw you, Jer, on Twitter the other day saying that you were kind of, had taken to kind of mentally preparing yourself for a tie by kind of having a few glasses of wine and going on TikTok, looking at some fitness and some <laughs> clean eating videos. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> that is, this is my kind life of an now. Extension. Yeah. This is kind of an extension of that. So if you want to just flatline, uh, this one, this one's for you. Um, so this race, the Barkley Martins, this is Barkley in Tennessee, not kind of nice, friendly Berkeley, California. And the race originally came about in the 80s because there's this high security jail in this kind of remote mountain location. And Earl's Earl, sorry, James Earl Ray, who was the man convicted for assassinating Martin Luther King, was in this jail. And he just he, uh, staged this dramatic jailbreak. So there's this massive manhunt, biggest manhunt to date in Tennessee history. They end up finding him 55 hours later eight miles from the compound. So you've got this eccentric runner, Gary Robbins, who kind of runs all these sort of crazy trails around Tennessee. He hears this news and he goes, that's a bit mad, 55 hours and only eight miles. I bet you we could run 100 miles in a, in 50 hours up there. So that's the original genesis of the race. He's, he sets this crazy challenge. He's this kind of eccentric puppet master um, at the middle of all this he was setting the course. The course changes slightly every year. It's kind of based on this kind of orientation involved here as well. So it's five loops of a 20-mile course set by him that you need to complete in 60 hours. So 100 miles, 60 hours. That's the official length of the course. The actual course is estimated to be close to 130 miles. And along the way, there's no aid stations. You've got a field of only 35 to 40. And there's also the course is kind of given to you orienteering style in kind of a slightly idiosyncratic description of where you're meant to be going. And then as you're going around your five laps, 20 miles in the wilderness, going through brambles, uh, covering elevation that's two times the height of Mount Everest, the checkpoints are books and your race number. So say if you're Jared Gilroy, number 16, at each checkpoint, you need to take the, the book place there, rip out page 16, put it in your little pouch and keep shuffling on. So that's the setup here. Um, Peak your interest? Yes, no? Yeah, absolutely. Like the documentary does. It sounds bizarre. <laughs> yeah, and just kind of put it in context, since 1986, they've had 15 finishers of the 100-mile challenge. So, <laughs> so no one finishes. These are basically... Mo- most years, the- nobody wins. Yeah, I think like the finish race is something like 0.2. 
And right. if the finish, because the course changes slightly every year, if there's kind of an aberration and three or four people finish, the next year you get a backlash from that and you get kind of 5% more difficulty adds to the course. But um, it's really interesting. Um, just And then, so that's kind of your setup. Uh, just for this kind of specific documentary called Where Dreams Go to Die, Gary Robbins and the Barkley Marathons, it's this guy, Gary Robbins, who's an elite, elite ultra runner, as all these guys are, taking on the challenge. So um, it kind of follows his journey trying to conquer the course, um, which kind of, it's I, not to over-egg it, but I describe it as a bit of a mix between Moby Dick and Apocalypse Now. So we have a little bit of audio um, of Gary here that we might just play, and then I'll talk you through the actual documentary. I tried to get back at things pretty quickly. I had nothing. I had an inability to sustain stress levels. I, I couldn't train. I couldn't physically do anything. I couldn't go up steep terrain without getting lightheaded, without having to sit down. I was kind of a shell of myself for, for six months. Um, just wiped my calendar, wasn't running, wasn't training, was just trying to stay on top of work. As soon as he said it, I was like, okay, we'll go, no problem. And it was never an issue. I knew that he needed to get it done. I know that he needs to get it done. And I'm gonna support him in that as many years as it takes. It's Thursday, March 9th. It's interesting. This morning, Linda said to read before I left that daddy was going to war today. Could not be more accurate. Every single day is just a battle. It's a war between my ears to get out here and do the same thing over and over again. People are mad, aren't they? Like People are mad. Demonstrably, objectively, just a bit crazy. And this captures that really well because if we watch kind of sport to try and find these kind of moments of sort of like elevated drama or like raw human endeavor this is what you're getting here in spades but the format of it's really interesting because we've kind of gone through the fact this is a bit of a um kind of quirky setup in general so media any kind of media any type of support team any type of kind of spectators as much as you can have spectators are only allowed in the camp compound where the race starts where the loops end where racers pass through so you're only allowed there and one kind of viewing spot, there's kind of one elevated spot you can go to where kind of it's like if you go to watch a cross-country race and you see the people pass by you once. That's basically all you're getting here. And you're also getting an average of people being out in the field for, like, best-case scenario, a loop is eight to nine hours. So the format is, you heard a bit of uh, Linda, his wife there. It's Linda, their small kid, and a few kind of team members who are sort of supporting him at base camp. You've got Gary going out into the wilderness and coming back with like, coming back each loop, every runner with like the color drained from their face, probably literally like they say kind of shock and um, yes, it's basically shock and sort of just the physical shock. Your body's taken the mental shock. There's also the mental challenge of even that whole thing of collecting the books. You have people going out, uh, getting disorientated, not being able to find the books uh, I think the record is one one person being out for 33 hours on one loop and having covered actually four miles of the race. All right, to so, explain the original origins of the story, you get a bit lost up there. Are there bears in the mountains? Uh, or they or never wildcats? mention any bears. There's a lot of thistles and like every, like every single person who comes back after a lap is coming back with their calves and their legs just shredded to pieces. That's kind of part of the challenge here it's all rough terrain it's all off road there's a lot of ascents and descents as well so you get people coming back as well with like 
bloodied heads. Um, there's a ro- there's a road called Quitters Road, which is kind or Quitters yeah Quitters Road, which is kind of like the trail. It's like the sort of North Star Trail if you find yourself in trouble. But um, it's 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 just crazy, and it starts off quite kind of okay. Here's all these people out in the woods running around. You've kind of got limited access, but just limited access to what you can see because you're kind of confined to base camp. But it's just this amazing drama, and like Linda's wife, he's an ultra runner. In her own right, he's kind of done races up to 120 miles, but like more conventional racing. You can kind of see the toll it's taken on her as this goes on as well. And we kind of heard that clip there, which was in between races. The bit like where she realises she's married a madman. That, that takes its toll, does it? Like, it does, yeah. Can I ask, but, um, Joe, like, is, there, is there a commonality here in terms of why these people are doing it? Because there are other options in terms of proving your physical prowess and you know that you're better than the rest of us. That would be easier than this, but, but why? Why are they all going for this? The concept of it is that it's meant to be. The, his whole concept of it is trying to test the limits of human endeavor and endurance. Uh, the founder of the race, so that's kind of that seems to be. It, it just it seems to be literally this kind of Moby Dick kind of pursued element of it. But um, it's interesting as well because the uh, field is limited to thirty five or forty. It's quite a convoluted, you need to kind of find out how to enter, which apparently is quite a kind of, quite a, um, quite hard information to attain. And once you've done that, part of the process is writing a letter to Gary, the race founder, stating your case for why you want to race. But then you have these kind of weird quirks over the years, like um, a bunch of kind of Russian uh, runners will show up one year or to be like, everyone kind of have, they're, they're just kind of these slightly... Like there's no way to there's no way to put it. Like you have to be kind of crazy to do it, and that's captured really well here. And like the comparison to something like Apocalypse Now is kind of it all starts off quite kind of sanitized and civilized, and then it ju- it's just this descent into madness. And then also you've got that kind of aspect of in between races, like you had that in that clip Gary talking about kind of not being able to sort of physically really take on any physical. This is a like. Ultra, ultra runner not able to take on any physical challenge for six months after. It's like, kind of reminds me of sort of, you hear it out about boxing matches. It's like, oh, they both left a bit of themselves in that ring that night or kind of we talk about fights and people never be the same again. Yeah. You're kind of tapping into that nerve. But um, just on this, yeah, this just insane scale. And not to give any spoilers, I'd highly recommend not watching the trailer for this before watching it. Also, just... It's a good tip for life in general, I it think. It is, actually, yeah. 100%, especially here. And just kind of, on a quick bit of housekeeping, this is 100% free on YouTube. Um, there are a few other Barkley Martins documentaries, but like there's there's a bigger one called The Race That Eats Its Young, which was on Netflix. Um, but that kind of gets a bit more caught up in kind of the quirkiness of the event and kind of the characters where this tells that side of the story really well, then just gives you this kind of incredibly raw, like hands off and um, the documentarian is a friend of his so it's a, it's a very at ease very like just a very raw okay. look at so you're recommending this 100% and just the last thing is the running time is 75 minutes so yeah that's, that's just on the outer nice. fringe of what I can do these days exactly it's, it's a nice sweetener but yeah highly highly recommend it and it's on Netflix it's not on Netflix it's on YouTube it's on YouTube okay yeah, so I think it had a limited, um, limited kind of was screened here and there. It's very much kind of an independent film. Uh, Eden Newbury is the documentarian. He has a YouTube channel called The Ginger Runner, which is also a very good running channel in general. But um, yeah, that's up on YouTube. 
now messing. And in my opinion, crazy story in general on the race. Crazy story from Gary and incredibly well told in this really succinct and well put together documentary. It's called Where Dreams Go to Die and you can get it on YouTube. Very quickly, um, you pointed this out and I kind of hadn't really even noticed it, but sport is coming to an end for like a little period of time uh, in terms of the all day, every day, every single night of the week, something mad on. It's going to be confined to GA at weekends for at least three weeks. <laughs> yeah, the, the URC have kind of found a nice bit of real estate for the next month where... We're all going to be engrossed in um, them playing off after the Champions Cup final. But um, apart from that, the key real estate you're getting back here is your midweek. So it's not going to be your Spurs versus Watford on a Wednesday night. You might be just interested enough to sit down and watch it and kind of be bypassing other things you could be doing with your life. Um, There's also kind of a bit of a nice kind of correlation here where we have the football and everything taking a bit of a breath and also we have a lot of projects that were delayed because of COVID coming on stream now. So you've got your Ozarks back, Better Call Saul um, and then, yeah, it's interesting, I was actually catching up on Better Call Saul. I hadn't realised they were doing the, the mid-season break thing. Um, I'm not sure if we've talked about this before. Where do we stand on week we're, to week? We're, spin we're a spoiler-free zone here, seasons. by the way, just to, to let everybody know, because I, I had to, I muted all the words associated with Ozark while I was catching up with it on Twitter. It's the only way to, like, I did the same with Dairy Girls, because after the Liam Neeson thing, I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, what's the point? That's, what? So you just have to, it's the only way, if you're using social media, you've got to mute all the words associated with the show. Yeah, it's a good, good kind of like uh, gateway joke to just getting off social media in general, actually, just by yeah. watching like the first episode of any TV show. Um, it, feel, it feels like we're back in like 2020 again, like Better Call Saul, Ozark, like a new Sally Rooney adaptation as well. It's like we're just doing this all over again. This is early pandemic stuff where football is stopped and uh, actually being able to watch stuff that isn't Premier League football is... feel British. a little bit camera about life generally now, though. Not going to lie. Yeah, maybe. No banana bread. Uh, wouldn't rule that out. <laughs> Yeah, just bring that back and then we're, then we are back. I, I, I was not aware of mid-season break and Better Call Saul, Joe. I think it's a disgrace. I think that everything should just be put in one. And there needed to be a, a flashing warning at the start of every episode being like, don't um, watch this if unless you're prepared to get hurt and frustrated in, in the middle of the summer because there's nothing until July the 11th. And I can't wait that long, to be quite honest. I finished the first uh, part of the season last night and I was like, oh, well, that's... The one uh, uh, inkling of uh, hope here is that we only have to wait until the next week. But no, we have to wait until the start of July, which is disgraceful. I didn't realise this either, uh, Joseph, but Stranger Things goes live on Friday and it is broken up as well. Yeah, like, it's kind of, it's kind of feeds into the conversation we're having there a second ago about kind of having to mute, I'm, I'm the same boat, having to mute shows. Like, there was probably a year where I knew I would watch Top Boy but I wasn't watching Top Boy and you see Top Boy popping up everywhere and straight away it's like nah scroll 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 or mute like we are all living in these kind of like animated content experiences but um, Stranger Things is an interesting one because it's back on Friday for the first half of the final series with average episode lengths of around I think an hour 15 then they're taking a break for about a month coming back with the final two episodes which I think are about an hour 15 then the final final episode it's two and a half hours. So, I kind of, uh, last season of Stranger Things, I was like, I'm not sure I'm coming back to this. Um, yeah, I have never watched it actually, to be, to be honest, I need to get on it. But just, this is this is a time where we need to remind people that myself, Joe and Joe did do a Better Call Saul player ratings at the start of the pandemic, complimented by none other than Rhea Seahorn, who tweeted us, um, very simple thanks, because we uh, 
spoke nice things about our characters, so uh, we know what we're talking about, just in case you're wondering. We're experts. Experts, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and finally, you want to give something a quick mention, Joseph? Sorry, yeah, Unusual Suspects, the podcast over on Go Loud. Have you guys heard this yet? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, I, I, I know it's kind of been heralded, but also these things are such a kind of slow drip fees, and it's just, it kind of, it just came back to me the other day, I was just thinking about it. I, I saw it kind of pop up, someone who had just discovered uh, it, tweeting about it, and I was like, it kind of just triggered again in my head, thinking back, wow, I listened to that very quickly, but what an incredible series that was. Yeah, it's definitely worth digging out if you haven't heard it. Um, it tells the story of the Brinks robbery uh, in upstate New York and the millions and millions and millions that uh, disappeared into the ether and where did they go? And it has some incredible characters in it. So, uh, yeah, good stuff, Joseph. Thanks a million. That's this week's episode of Have You Seen? More uh, at the same time next week. Um, very quickly, two comments for you. Kildare to win Leinster in the next 10 years. That's hurling from Tomás O'Connell. Underage and Nace playing in the Kilkenny Leagues and producing a massive pool of quality coming through. Take it to the bank, boys. And Shifty Lad says, Good morning, lads. Out walking while listening. First day allowed to train a small bit in three years due to illness. Muggy weather is nothing once you can get out there and do it. Good luck with try tie. Congratulations to you, Shifty, for being back out. Absolutely delighted for you. And thanks for the, uh, the text this morning. Now, all cycling enthusiasts and sports fans, anybody who's interested, anybody with a pulse, this is your competition. Skoda are the official main partner of the Tour de France and to celebrate OT, OTB Sports, we've got a once-in-a-lifetime giveaway for you. This amazing prize is a VIP trip to stage 13 of the Tour de France from the 14th to the 16th of July, including flights and accommodation for one winner plus your partner. All you need to do for a chance to win is to be available to travel from the 14th to the 16th of July and tell us who our mystery voice is. Kenyan-born British cyclist, four-time Tour de France winner, asked about a Saturday night takeaway. For me personally, that doesn't involve big bowls of pasta, but rather big bowls of rice. You're either a pasta rider or you're a rice rider. Every daily winner will win a €100 one-for-all voucher and a Skoda cycling jersey, and you'll go into the draw for the grand prize. Best of luck. Skoda drivers, for another chance to win, check out skodaservice.ie. Anthony Moyes is next. OTB AM. Anthony Moyles, how are you? I'm good, gents. How are you doing? What do Kildare need to do? Can Kildare beat this Dublin team? Like, are we are we underrating the Dublin team and their lads who have nine All Irelands and going, oh, this could be this could be close this weekend, as opposed to like nine All Irelands for some of these lads? Not yet. So, eight. Yeah, eight. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Go on, Owen. <laughs> there is a big difference between eight and nine. There is. There is. It's a, it's a seismic difference, seismic, really. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you think about it. If you have eight just hanging around, you're like a really, you know, so never got that ninth. Can't possibly retire at eight. <laughs> no, couldn't possibly do it. Ah. I'm still relatively down over the last game, Jerry. <laughs> the mead game. Wow. <laughs> I've been given some time, okay. and it still You're hasn't. Still hungry after the lack of hot dogs, or what's going on there? Yeah, third yeah, stage yeah, of grief. Yeah, just yeah can't the kids. Get over it. The kids just keep reminding me. Um, yeah, it is. It's a weird. Um, uh, it is definitely the, the stages of grief. So if if Mead had ran them a bit closer or had even put up a fight for you know fifty odd minutes, I would have said yes. I think Kildare will will get even closer. But then I'm kind of I'm flipping between how abject Mead were um, and the lack of intensity and fight in that first half, and I'm hoping hoping that. Glenn and the boys won't obviously set up in such a similar fashion as they did against Westmead um, and that they will actually make it 
an arm wrestle for at least the first 45-50 minutes. Do Kildare have the forward prowess? Yes, I think they do. Do they have the defence? Question marks. So that's that's, uh, uh, counterintuitively. Yeah. In a weird way, if they're going to have any hope, it's only going to be in a shootout because they're not going to win. They're not going to win ten eight. They're going to concede twenty points, right? We we kind of know that they're going to Dublin are going to kick between eighteen and twenty two points, and if they don't score goals, if it's like not eighteen, Kildare have a chance. So do you just actually decide we're going to be relatively loose here? They're going to score twenty three, twenty four points. We need to score three sixteen. Off you go, lads. It's a weird one because it'll be. You know, management team. It's the first. So most most new management teams when they come in against Dublin will decide we're going to keep it tight. You know, we don't want to get a drubbing on our hands early in our kind of tenure. You know, um, so that's the kind of fail safe that they that they generally revert to. I'm hoping that the lads are brave enough that they actually say, you know what, no, we can't play that way and we don't want the identity of this Kildare team. Yeah, correct, correct. So they need to just say, right, we're going to go. And and they are playing quite, even throughout the league, they were racking up big scores and they were conceding big scores, but they were racking up big scores. Um, And obviously the league... For them, they they will have learnt an awful lot from the game they played against Dublin, albeit it's not the same Dublin team, okay? Um, But they will get confidence from that. I think that they will potentially look at the Mead failings and say, okay, these are areas that we definitely need to ensure don't happen uh, against us. Um, And there are numerous areas that they need to that they need to avoid and a lot of it is getting contact on players and making sure that it's just not as easy for Dublin just to transition the ball from defence to attack simply with one or two kick passes and you know players being nearly fearful of standing out in front and actually making hits and increasing the intensity in the game and everything else and just running around like chasing shadows so do do I think they'll will they will they do it at kind of a six forwards six defenders and two midfielders no I don't I can't see that right so do I think they'll put Flynn and will they play a kind of a a counter-attacking game with McCormack you know kind of pulling the strings at 11 um, but more than likely 10 or 11 or 12 behind the ball at times to try to frustrate and then breaking quickly quick long ball into the likes of Flynn let him just take players on you know I, it's funny I was I was looking back on the game a little bit like Dublin the the, the full back line against Mead for Dublin was one on one you know Mick Fitzsimons was one on one Gannon young Gannon was one on one there was never a situation where they had now they didn't have to but even at the very very start they never decided to get back to it so the, and even if you look at their league they're kind of saying listen we trust you so go mark your man. You know, we're not going to have a massive amount of kind of uh, assistance there for you in a kind of a 3 or 4v2 situation. So if that's the case, I think Flynn, who is absolutely dangerous when he gets the ball in hand and decides if, if, his, if, his, if his mood is in and he comes running at you, his ability, his speed, his, 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 his elusiveness, he will cause major issues. Um, but the problem is, can they win enough ball? Can they pressure enough times? And can they get the ball into them? And then when they get those chances, they have to make sure. If they get three goal chances, they have to, Jerry, in my opinion, they have to have three goals. Yeah. They can't even have two goals. Yeah, I, and I kind of feel the same. Like, I, I think even if they do score three goals, there's a possibility that with the openness they have at the back, notwithstanding, if they, even if there's a defensive structure there, like, if you think back to the game in Newbridge, the ball kind of squirted across the Kildare goal line and off the post and out and, mm. like, four different goal line saves. And, yes. you know, loads of weird stuff happened in that game to get them to win just about at the end. And, that you know, you make your own luck and you deserve it, but... 
chances are three or four of those go in for the dubs this weekend. And the key is not to be devastated when Dublin are like very far ahead of you because you're going to get a period of the time okay, where the Dublin defence is like one on one, and you're like, okay, when that happens, you need to score heavily, quickly. Yes. Yeah, like. We used to always say, like you know, we went into various games. I remember I can't remember whichever Leinster Championship game it was, and we we were talking about how fast Dublin start, and they do start fast, and there is this nearly this expectation that they are going to start fast, and they literally throw the kitchen sink at you for the first fives, eight, ten, and I remember in that particular game we were six nil after about seven minutes, and you're kind of looking around, but there was no panic. And that's what you need. You need that situation. You need to say, okay, we are going to get up the pitch and we're going to get a chance and we just need to break that 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 kind of slide, you know, and whether it's a goal or a point, just get on the board and then all of a sudden they do take a bit of a breather and then you have to press and then you have to try to get it in the second one and the third one. And even in the Mead game, there were those chances. Like Morris had a chance of a goal, you know, very early on and he slips and they had another couple of chances that just pulled wide and all of a sudden there's one three one four left behind and then of course the gap goes from six to nine yeah and then it's 11 and then it's done mm-hmm. you know if you can get it to six pull it back to two to three and then they go again and then you pull if you can just keep hanging on the coattails that's 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 the big thing so that's the big challenge for them do i think they have the ability to do it yes i do it's a massive test for them and i think glenn ryan and and, and the management team will be full of confidence and they'll be instilling that confidence in the players and saying, listen, you know, you've you've gone toe-to-toe with a lot of these lads underage. Um, definitely Kildare are, are, are going in an upward trajectory. You can see it with the minors, the 20s, everything else. So there's a great feeling around the county uh, and and they're buoyed by that. So I think I think I'm hoping that they can make it a, a, a good, strong game. Like you mentioned the missed chances for me. It still ended up being the biggest concession in five years for Dublin in the Leinster Championship at the end of the day. So on that defensive question for Dublin, it's frustrating that we're two games in and we've still yet to see them under any pressure, so we don't actually know what they're going to do. But there were times in that game against Mead, just because I was in the stadium, Merchant was the extra man dropping back. I, I don't suspect that's going to be their tactic going forward. Apparently in Wexford Park, Gooch was saying in the Sunday game that Johnny Cooper was their extra man back there. So again, we have to wait to see when they're in a pressure scenario what their plan is but it does feel like they are working on something, that they have looked at what happened in the league and said, we are going to play maybe a sweeper or find our new version of Keno Sullivan this campaign. Who would that person be if, if they go down that path? Well, like, Merchant is a good option to have it, uh, have in, in that situation because he's obviously unbelievably quick and he can cover the ground fast. Um, I, I, it's funny, the, the crowd, the atmosphere was so dead that you could hear him. I don't know if you could hear him, but you could hear him in that second half. And indeed, in the first half, well, I was I was kind of down where, where, where Meade were attacking in the first half. But you could hear him very audibly kind of roaring, ball, ball, ball. So he was going around as a kind of an annoying defender, if you get me. So, in other words, I have you, but he comes on my shoulder and really puts the pressure on. Okay, so, yeah. kind of comes in comes in hard and aggressive on the tackle um, and is roaring ball, 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 which is a kind of a basketball thing, just to kind of put pressure. So, of course, inevitably, the forward throws out a pass and he goes to the next man. So, he was... In that role, you either are, and we've spoken about this before, where John Small plays that that role of of the plus one, and he's in the kind of D area. So anything that comes across there, he's looking to attack that ball, be it man or ball. Whereas Merchant was more of a 
he was more of a, as I said, a kind of a, you know, a, a fly that you just couldn't swat away. He was just going everywhere. He was literally going to the corner, back out. You know, so he was the extra man, but he wasn't an extra man yeah. that was sitting. He was a very, very aggressive extra man, if you get me. So that could be something that they're deciding to do, where they're putting pressure on the ball rather than waiting for it to come into an area and then looking to snag it. Why are teams now good at finding out where he's, his extra, like the opposition? So where was his man? Where was the? It's fifteen. So yeah. Like, why? Why are teams not good at going? Okay, well, if Small's doing that, and Merchant's doing that. We have two somewhere. Where are those bodies, lads? Where are you? What are you doing? Yes. Well, why, that's. Why are teams less good at that than they should be at this stage? I, I yes, I think because what ha- ends up happening is sometimes. T- forward lines are so spread out over the field right so Merchant doing a role similar to what I just explained he can put pressure where the ball is by the time the ball gets to that far side he can then he's pass it on exactly he's left on and then the other person on the far side has pushed across and he takes up the role so it's about shifting across shifting your bodies across but to try to counteract that you obviously need to go on twos and threes of forwards and where me got a lot of um, not a lot but your point on is well made they got more, um, I suppose, luck and, 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 and um, you know, a kind of achievement rather than a lot of other teams was. And if you look at some of the scores that, some of that Dublin conceded, if you are Desi Farrell, you're looking back and you're saying, actually, when they, when they were coming at little angles, you know, and a little bit of pace and fellas running at different angles, little pop passes, they were kicking some relatively easy scores, you know. So there was, a, like, I mean, I was watching a four or five examples where it was just very, very simple. Tomas O'Reilly would get the ball, he'd kind of drift in, a man would cut across him at an angle, he'd either pivot, pass him that pass, another man coming runner, and then it just stuck over the bar. And I was kind of going, wow, that was, that was, that was easy. Now, you have to counteract that with where we're Dublin just saying, listen, we just don't concede any Possibly, goals, yeah. you know, and we just make sure that if it, we don't mind you kicking points. You can kick them out there all day long, but you're not getting in here. Um, but there were still a number of chances. Morris, as I said to you, had probably two or three chances. The one where, you know, he's predominantly left-footed and Mitkvitt Simons knew that. Do you remember the one where he went on his right then and he blasted it wide mm. um, on his right? That was the second one. Um, so there was probably a concession of possibly two to three goal chances, which you would feel, Ger, that if Kildare get them as I said, they have to make sure that they that they that they achieve and get the get the get the three points on the board. Yeah, I, I think Kildare supporters are relatively comfortable with the quality of forwards we have, like really for the first time in my lifetime. <laughs> it's like we have a lot of forwards who can yeah. actually who aren't gonna miss when the ball is like in the D. They're, they're, you know, uh, can I just say on that as well, you have your, your three forwards that for me have to start, your full forward line. But the way Gaelic football has moved over the last little while, if you want to play some sort of defensive system, you're essentially sacrificing one of those full forwards. So Kildare are either gonna sacrifice one of their players in their best line of their team or they're going to end up taking one of those corner forwards and asking him to do a role that he just can't fulfil. So in many ways, Kildare are backed into a corner where they have to just go for it on, on Saturday. Yeah. Like it's the, the only way that it suits his team. Otherwise, it just wouldn't make sense with the players that Glenn Ryan has at his disposal. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think you will find that they have four up more often than not. Mm. You know, so they'll have a two-and-a-half forward line and a two-and-a-full forward line. Or they, what they might do is they might do you know, a 1-1 one, one and then two inside. So McCormick will be sitting and they'll have one out in front of him. But you're right, it, it, there's a lot of onus then on 10 and 12. You know, 10 and 12 will do a serious amount of hard work. Um, and... and that's just that's just a given in in this day and age. Um, midfield will be under pressure, um, and midfield will have to break at least break even. 
um, because it's it's an area whereby I don't think Evan Comerford was pressured enough by me on kickouts. Absolutely not. He got so many away just out to his right, out to James McCarthy. I do not know what the setup was was doing, but he got so much. Remember, he just kicked him out to his right hand side. McCarthy came down the line and just played like it was. It was nearly like under twelve stuff. Another just straight ball. Numerous times out under the Hogan stand with a, f- a player coming across, so I just thought it was a bit. They'll they'll definitely have to. I think they will have to pressure to kick out. Of course, they'll have to pressure well, to kick out. That's the point. Uh, Thomas O'Connell or Thomas O'Connell on YouTube says the two most recent games where Kildare got the biggest beatings were Dublin last year and Mayo this year. Both times they allowed them to win their kick out and walk up to the forty-five with it. It can't happen again. Like I I don't know how. I don't know how you could like morally stand over a team and go, we're going to let the opposition take the ball out and then let them be creative when actually there's you're creating a 50-50 when the goalkeeper has the ball it's actually more weighted in your favour than not because you know uh, you can push your players up it depends what your team is like Derry can stand off a kick out pretty well and and achieve the turnover very well but I don't think that works for this Kildare team does it? It took them three years to be able to do that do you know what I mean? like and it's a it's a massive it is so you're you're either doing one thing or the other you can't get caught between the two stools and and your the dairy situation the example is is that they have honed and they are absolutely comfortable that when you come to their half and inside their 50 that they're saying that's no problem we're going to force you to take long kicks which they did against Monaghan you know which they they forced Monaghan and, as, and I think we touched on this the last day the Monaghan uh, accuracy was off but at the same time you know, I'd be slightly worried if I was Rory Gallagher because Monaghan did get opportunities in that game. I think Monaghan would would be absolutely kicking themselves post that game and saying, you know what, all we needed was one extra pass and to kick to kick maybe under a bit more pressure, but to kick fifteen yards closer than where we were kicking. You know, um, and Donegal will have learned from that massively. Uh, Derry, I think I think Derry will have to mix it up, but against Patton, his 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 ability to kick, be it long or short, is so good. Can they stand off that kick out? Well, I think it almost makes more sense to stand off that kick out. Yeah, because Patton just goes over the top. Like, and then if you've got the the classic Donegal Michael Murphy down to Ryan McHugh, yeah. I'm not sure if they're still uh, trying to do that. Uh, maybe based my analysis on eight years ago, but there's definitely that potential with that Donegal kick out to just go over the top. Like yeah, no, got, they've thrown know. it in a number of times, yeah. even in the league, they've thrown it in, and it is a weapon to have when you least expect it. Um, I think there probably is. I think Derry will decide. You know what? Just let, let's just give it to him. Um, and if. I think there's opportunities when they can pressure it, right? And that's what they decide to do. They'll decide at certain times we're going to do it. I think Kildare can't decide that. I think Kildare just has to say, we're literally going to try to yeah, get, if we get as beaten, much as possible. we're going to die on our shields. Correct. And we, I think people will be happy with that. So into the, the Derry-Donegal game, right? We, um, we're now thinking of, because of what happened last year, as uh, automatic All-Ireland contenders the winners for this. Are we? Or is it still not enough? Are the, is the lesson of last year's so unique given the circumstances and the difficulties that Dublin were having and for whatever reason Kerry's issues that actually still no matter what happens in this game uh, Dublin and Kerry will be in a separate tier Um, I don't I don't think so because the only thing I would say is when you come through Ulster and let's say it is Derry you are absolutely battle hardened Um, they haven't got that many injuries throughout it they've been quite lucky Um, it depends on how I suppose taxing this game is, which you would you would under you would believe that it's going to be massively taxing. Um, can they recover? Have they got the ability to recover in a short space of time? But whereas Kerry, 
who we'll, I know we'll touch on this, will probably come in absolutely relatively easily, right? And you would imagine, depending on what we just spoke about, Dublin, if they do come true, will will want a a test. They'll want a test from Kildare. Like they'll want a game where they only win by two or three points because all of a sudden they have gone to the places where they need to go to, which you never go to, by the way, in training. And neither you really go to it in league. You only go to those dark places in championship. And they need to go to those places to really test themselves and to right the wrongs of the league and to right the wrongs of last year and to say, no, we are, we are back. Um, and they won't experience that until they do experience it, if you get me. Kerry will definitely not experience it in the Munster final. So probably the only teams that have necessarily will have experienced it will be coming out of um, Ulster. So for that point, I think, yes, you have to consider them absolutely. But then the flip side of the coin is, of course, is that they've come through some serious battles um, and tiredness and all those different things and maybe some injuries. But I think in this day and age, players are so conditioned, they're so fit, uh, they're, they're well capable of motoring along nearly week by week well, that I don't think it's a massive issue. We have been complaining about the uh, structures of the championship, but there's eight weeks today to the All-Ireland football final. Well, the championship starts this weekend. Uh, maybe the weekend after, really, the first round of the qualifiers. But mm. it feels like it gets it gets going now. I think so. It gets going now, and you know, people are. I've seen lots of people bemoaning the fact. You know, I was obviously, as you know, lads know, involved with the, the CPA, and you know, as a player, you don't want three, four weeks between games. You just want you want let's let's go, let's get it done week by week. There's lots of sports to play week by week, and and sports much more, shall we say, taxing and 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 physically demanding than GAA is. Um, and you just get on with it. So. Um, Derry Donegal I think Donegal Donegal are licking their lips like Donegal are absolutely licking their lips coming into this one I think they're just they're, they're sitting pretty um, they haven't set the world alight you know even the last day I thought you know Murphy and McBrarty were okay only when they put Murphy in full forward did they really start kind of making hay but they were able to make that strategic change um, and tactical change and it worked very very well for them and they can do that to you I thought McHugh and a number of their bigger players the last day weren't fantastic but they're really building and they're building some good backs some very very good defenders they just seem to have a lovely kind of uh, um, uh, just a, 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 a list of guys that are able to come in and take up roles um, and slot into the way they play. And, you know, we were just touching on Derry there and it's taken Derry three or four years. Well, the Donegal blueprint has been there for the last number of years and it's just, as I say, fellas just slip in and just go, yeah, I know what I'm meant to do and it's fine and we know the way we play and away we go. Rory Larmer's not having it. He says, Derry having a fantastic defensive system is a myth. 15 men inside the 40 yards concede 17 points and give up the same amount again against Monaghan. Donegal will win the Ulster final by six. We'll see, Rory. I mean, 17 points is kind of actually okay if you're a good team and you believe in your forwards. Well, like and, and, and I think that's their idea. They score goals. Their idea is is that they will break hard and that they will open you. Um, and again, this is a big thing. If, if you're playing that kind of counter-attacking situation, you have to make sure that when you get the ball and you counter-attack, that that ball goes dead. Because what happens is your defensive structure is now three, broken. Three yes, so we are, we're all rushing up the field. And you saw that the last day against Monaghan. Monaghan only ma- really made hay when they then broke that down and counter-attacked Derry. And I think Donegal will look at that. Donegal will say, right, we need to get back quickly. We need to try to influence the ball. And then when we do, we go long early. 
So we don't run it. We go long early and we try to disrupt what they've what they what they have already abandoned, shall we say? Yeah. So it's going to be. I think it's going to be like tactically. It's going to be absolutely fascinating because you've got you know two managers and two management teams that really think about the game. So um, yeah, but I think it's it, it's it's it'll be. I, I think it'll be a cracker. Uh, I think Galway Ross Common will also be a cracker. I think uh, the game in Croke Park at the end of the league was was brilliant, although. I presume you expect Galway to be a much different team this weekend to the one we saw that day, especially in defence. I think so. You know, I think you've you've, you've two setups where I think the defence there's question marks over their defence. Uh, I think there's question marks possibly over the Roscommon midfield. Um, I think Galway will come out on top there. I think the middle eight of both Galway and Roscommon will be massively important because I'd say there'll be a lot of ball kicked out there, and I think Galway will probably edge it in that situation. But Roscommon have an unbelievably good set of four. So I think again this would be a shootout. Um, you know, knowing Porrick uh, and the way his his philosophy on the game, I think he'll feel that they again have the forward prowess that'll that'll you know ultimately win them the game. Um, I think the game will be won on in that middle eight and who can actually get enough ball to, to put it into the forward line That's that will be where it all where it all really I, I think lies because once the forwards get it on either side they'll do damage are those, um, are those two, whoever comes out of that I, I mean they're presumably looking at Tyrone going we're not that far behind them and we're a bit battle hardened especially if it's Galway who came through Mayo and Castlebar and, and the then, draws Ulster as well rather than Kerry or Dublin in a semi-final should they get that far yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I don't think so. Okay, I don't think so. I just, I just think, I just think they're a little bit b- below it, just a little bit below it. They should surely be trying to like uh, fake it till they make it, though, right? Oh, absolutely, hundred percent. And, yeah, and that's yeah. where one of these teams might have the the beating of a team who we think is higher than them in the power rankings. Say. Yes, yeah, that never happens. It's 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 you know it's the Crow Park effect as well. Um, when you come in there, and and all of a sudden the pressure starts to get applied. Uh, I'm not sure. Roscommon Roscommon have been very very quiet. A lot of people have just you know naturally written them off. Okay, um, and. Uh, do they deserve to be written off completely against Go? I don't I, think so. I mean, I think it's because Roscommon, uh, they've yo-yoed up and down from a Division 1 to a Division 2 status, but these are the games they win where everybody talks about the other side of the draw. They're quietly licking, waiting yeah. in the long grass. Yeah. And uh, and all of a sudden, they're like three points up in injury time. And you're like, Jesus, nobody saw that coming. Well, they've beaten them twice already this year. Uh, like, and I think everybody and said, still, you, and still there's a sense that Galway have something else that they showed against Mayo, especially defensively, that'll change this. I think the fact that it's on Imperial Stadium as well is probably maybe giving people a bit of hope. Yeah, I, th- I would think so, but you know, I, I, I don't think Ross Common would be fearful of that. Um, I, I think of, of all of the possible kind Ross of Common shakeups, two to one. yeah. I yeah, think that's, that, that I think that's, that's a, a game. That's a big price. That's a big price now. I, I think that's the game where something could happen of all the because I'm not convinced by Galway just as of yet. I'm just not. I think I think if you allow Galway to go at you, they will absolutely destroy you. But I think if you get amongst them, you make it very very tight. They can get quite frustrated. All right, we didn't get to the Talton Cup this week or the Kerry game. We'll talk about the Kerry game again some other time. <laughs> Uh, the odds on that one are um, prohibitive at this stage yeah. uh, Anthony good stuff thanks a million no butter Jared uh, you presume you're predicting Dublin to win I am Dublin Donegal I think Dublin uh, Donegal and I'm going to go Roscommon alright ok OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day here's what's on OTB Sports Radio today at 1 o'clock it's OTB Gold an Irish football special with Given Quinn McAteer and Kilban 
Koi gig at three o'clock is our Sue Ronan interview. At four, it's a retro panel talking about caring for the sports person. OTB Golds, Colin Gooch Cooper at six, and the show is live tonight with Joe from seven. You can follow us across all our social platforms. And we'll be back tomorrow with the Football Pod's very own Paddy Andrews, rugby analyst Ross Hamilton, previews the Champions Cup final, and we have the eagerly anticipated return of Deal or No Deal. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.